0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Safe, The Great Courses Plus, Best Fiends, Squarespace, Western Digital, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: There's no shortage of astonishing legends about strange encounters between humans and unusual beings. And some of these stories are quite famous, and talking about them is well-worn territory. Others are more obscure, and within that subset, every now and then, you stumble across a story that's so bizarre, you almost can't wrap your head around it. Tonight's topic is one of those tales. In early May of 1973, something very strange visited the beautiful Isle of Wight off the southern coast of England. We suppose it might have gone unnoticed if it hadn't been for a couple of meddling kids who happened to be walking over the bridge it was hanging out under. Well, that, and the fact that it was wearing blue gloves, had three fingers on its hands and toes, looked kind of like a cross between a robot and a clown, and was comically clumsy. So yeah, it, or he, did get noticed. Real noticed. In fact, the two kids, age seven, visited with him for over half an hour, in his metal shack with wooden furniture and tiny dials on the wallpaper. Wait, now this is getting ridiculous. Well, maybe it is, but these kids' stories were remarkably consistent, detailed, and similar. Adults in the area didn't notice the metal hut, which later vanished, nor the being the kids spent time talking to. Is the whole story made up? We suppose you're going to have to decide for yourself. But not before you get done listening to us discuss it in great detail with our good friends Micah Hanks of the Micah Hanks Program and Rob Morphy of Kryptonaut. This conversation is out there. Get ready to meet Sam the Sandown Clown. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook and this is Forrest Burgess. Hello, and I am All Colors Sam. Sam the Sandown Clown seven-year-old Faye and her unnamed friend, 1973. Join us tonight
2: for a spirited roundtable discussion on one of the strangest encounters with a being of unknown origin we've ever heard.
1: Hello. And we're back with All Colors Astonishing Legends.
2: Okay, you're just making it weirder and weirder.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Although I don't know if it can get any weirder, the Sandown Clown story. No, but I I desperately wish there was some audio recording something, a a PlaySchool Fisher-Price toy recorder of his voice. Yeah. It's just beyond rational experience. And uh, it's something I would like to experience, please. Plus, he sounds friendly. He does sound friendly.
2: Well, we got a very fun show tonight. I wanted to touch on a few things here real quick before we dive in. The first thing I want to do is thank Rich Haddam again for spending so much time with us the last two episodes. There's nobody else that could have done that for us. Rich, we are so grateful. Keep an eye on your mailbox because we are sending you a sticker absolutely free. You should be getting it in the next few days. <laughs> oh, it's
1: not a sticker for the show. No, no it's, just it's just one a I found in junk mail. I, I think it's AAA.
2: It's one of my son's little gold
1: stars from his TV. <laughs> well, there you go. But you'll be getting that soon. And I'm sure we'll see you again soon on the interwebs.
2: I also want to add that in the Q&A episode, when I made that joke about Lore and Henry Plummer, oh, that's dear. all that was. It was just a joke. I want everyone mm. to know there's no beef between us and Lore. It's a great show. And the podcasting world, particularly Our genre is better for it being out there. It's also my favorite show to recommend to people who think we're too long. (laughs) But Mm. the truth is you can't be in a paranormal and unexplained world without covering some of the same ground. This goes for legends of all kinds. We're all going to cover something someone else did at some point. It's just the
1: nature of this cryptid beast. What sets us all apart from each other is the approaches we take. Well, that's true. A lot of our contemporaries are all going to cover the same topics, the greatest hits of the paranormal world, even though there's a seemingly endless amount of strange things to talk about. Yeah, the the bigger stories are going to be covered by the same shows, and what you just said is the perfect opening statement for tonight's show, because... You believe it's the most blatantly ripped-off topic that we've ever done. I, well, I mean, we're stealing this one so hard, we even brought along the podcaster who did it before us, Rob Morphy of the Kryptonaut Podcast. <laughs> and, yes, we did. But wait a second, now I mean, we brought Rob along, so he's just rediscussing it. We're yes, just, we're doing it without his knowledge, rediscussing and springing it on on it later. Yeah, we're bringing him in for another discussion, which is what we always do anyway. Amongst ourselves. So that's what you're getting tonight. It's a friendly discussion, a different take on it. We have different things to bring to the table, as I will say in the show. And we're so glad that Rob said yes to this. And the first thing we want to do is thank him for joining us tonight. Kryptonaut is an outstandingly entertaining show. And while we definitely do cover the same common ground from time to time, their approach is a lot funnier than ours. And saltier. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, big shout out to Chris Carnicelli and Mark Stores over there for letting us borrow Rob tonight.
2: Yes, and the very next thing we want to do is welcome Micah Hanks back to the show. Micah and Rob are both powerhouse researchers in this field. Micah has four podcasts out now, which you'll hear about tonight, including the Micah Hanks program, Middle Theory, the Seven Ages Audio Journal, and most recently, Sasquatch Tracks, which he co-hosts with Smoky Waddell and Jeff Smith. Holy mackerel is that one good if we Mm. i tell you what if we were producing four separate podcasts i'd be in a straight jacket i I don't know how he does it by the way it's uh forrest i don't know if you heard it's thundering like crazy here so
1: yeah that's (laughs) kind of cool but uh it means we have to uh, get things in one take here but yes you you and me both brother if we had to uh do four separate shows we'd lose our minds so what we do is jam the length of four separate podcasts into one episode The, you get your money's worth, which is free. Yeah. So that couldn't be more true. Uh, well, this one's going to be a blast. And of course, long winded, mostly due to me. So let's kick it off.
2: This is a very fun roundtable. This is something I've been looking forward to for a while here. We're welcoming back Micah Hanks and also welcoming Rob Morphy onto the show tonight for this really bizarre topic that we've got in store. And before we get into it, though, I did just want to do a little bit of quick background on Morphe, who we've mentioned on the show a ton of times over the years, actually. He hosts a show along with Mark Stores and Chris Carnicelli. Is Carnicelli or Carnicelli? Carnicelli. He says he says it so fast in yes. your opening. I'm like, he's a Carnicelli, okay. No, it's definitely uh,
3: Americanized,
2: yes. <laughs> but they host the perennial paranormal favorite show, The Kryptonaut Podcast, which is just a really outstanding show. We are all into a lot of similar topics. And the thing I wanted to tell you, Rob, and you can tell Mark and Chris this, is that in my mind, when we were conceiving Astonishing Legends, I wanted it to be like Kryptonaut. And somehow it derailed into a ditch of bottomless research, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) so it's great to have you on the show thank you so much for coming on the other thing we're gonna and we're just gonna go ahead and lean into this is that you guys already covered this and (laughs) the structures very similarly we were joking around a minute ago that we were just gonna do a little lead-in and then just play the kryptonaut
1: show uh right (laughs) (laughs) it's so much easier than doing your own research we found oh every time (laughs) and a lot more satisfying for everyone involved
2: we also want to welcome back Micah Hanks, who uh, has been on the show in the past, and also recently was a story producer for our Kira Object episodes, which also leaned heavily on Rob Morphe. <laughs> so we're like, <laughs> it's great to have uh, both these guys on the show. Thank you guys for taking the time to come on today. Micah has four podcasts right now: Middle Theory, the Micah Hanks Program, Seven Ages Audio Journal, and the new one we mentioned a few minutes ago, Sasquatch Tracks. So everyone here is pretty prolific in the podcasting arena, but also these guys are both top flight researchers and smarter than I am. So it's it's glad, I won't say Forrest because uh, mm. he doesn't like me to talk it, about his intelligence. Yeah, He doesn't
1: like to acknowledge me, uh, uh, <laughs> my shortcomings, but uh, now everyone else here is so much more prolific when we actually think about it, uh, doing multiple shows where we have a lot of trouble just doing the one. Really, when we hear of a topic, that is just so strange, we figured like, well, why not put our own spin on it? But of course include these guys with it because everyone's got a different viewpoint. They're all bringing something different and uh, profound to the table. That's why it's great. Uh, we thought to, let's get everybody talking about this thing and just see how many perspectives on something that is just illogical at the base of it. But also fun and a little bit heartbreaking, in a sense, it's got a lot of emotion to it too. Uh, it's not just a, a freak out encounter.
2: And on that note, let's get into it. We are tonight going to be talking about (laughs) Sam the Sandown Clown. I can't, just like his name, it's a sad little name, Sam. Sam the Sandown Clown. And when you hear his sad under the bridge story... It's really something. And I don't know, Rob, how did you initially stumble across? You guys are really good. Like us, you love really obscure stuff that maybe people haven't heard of. How did you
1: first come across this? Yeah. Wasn't it a listener of yours in England that tipped you off to the story?
3: Absolutely. We have a lot of great listeners and I am going to be kicking myself as much as I can being a non-acrobat by not remembering his name. He's awesome. I believe it's Tom, but What our listeners do is they send in a bunch of just anything they find intriguing. And what I do, and this is the glory of the internet is collect every scanned PDF possible of old Flying Saucer reviews. The Before a Journal is where this came from. It's another British journal that were basically like just mail order journals done by truly passionate researchers and investigators, you know, in decades past, you know, from the middle of the 20th century on. So this one in particular was a Before a Journal that was sent to us from one of our listeners. And he's a college student that said, this is just crazy, you should check it out. And I did And on the cover of it. You actually see a picture of this entity which like you were saying is beyond bat guano weird. It is one of the most (laughs) unique apparitions in paranormal history, be it ufological or whatever. So I read the original article and then I did as much research as I could. And I was just instantly fascinated by it. And this is the kind of thing that I always gravitated towards, be it, you know, in my own writing or whatever, it's just the weirdest of the weird. And this like with very few other cases takes the cake for maximum strangeness. Yeah, it
2: really does. Honestly, for me, and anybody who listens to our show knows this, maximum strangeness for me is Skinwalker Ranch. This story is weirder than anything that happened at
1: Skinwalker Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and personified, <laughs> it really yeah. And I've said this before on our show, when you get such strange stories, it can just be a weird sighting with really nothing to hold on to as far as context or, or deeper meaning. The stories that I love the most are ones that I believe leave little clues possibly about what's really going on out there in ways that maybe we can't understand, but there are little insights into this. And this story has that because there was communication between the witnesses and uh, this thing, which is referred to as a he in the Bufora journal, because it seemed to have at least, I think, towards the kid's eyes, a male presence or a persona And the things that it said, I think, give some insight into trying to explain itself of what it is, because, of course, the kids wanted to know. But also, when you look at what they saw and what they observed, even from their childlike perspective, it gives us possibly some clues as to just what kind of strangeness is out there. Before we get into the story, what we're going to do is we're going to actually read the story
2: in segments from the Bufora Journal because it really just, it can't be beat in terms of uh, narrative structure. It's quite enjoyable. But before we do that, let's talk about when and where uh, this happened
1: and who it involved. Forrest? Well, the area where this incident occurred is on the Isle of Wight near Lake Common in the town of Sandown. And the Isle of Wight, many people have heard of. But it's just south of the island nation of England. So it's just off its south coast. And uh, the most prominent towns uh, north of that would be Portsmouth and Southampton. Also adjacent to this incident and included in the property of the event is what is now called the Shanklin and Sandown Golf Club Course. So it's a golf course that was in use at the time. Also nearby is the Isle of Wight slash Sandown Airport which I believe at the time was used very little, but still operational. It seems to be operational today if you look at the Google Maps photos. At that time, I don't think it was used very much. And near also where the kids were venturing was a swampy marsh that was uh, adjacent to these areas that they had to get to to further the experience. And the date would be May of 1973.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was a Tuesday in May, in early May, which would have made May 1st was a Tuesday. It might have been the 8th. I think it was probably the 8th based on something that's uh, at the end of the article about three weeks later was when Faye told her dad about it. That was early uh, June. Right. And
1: the sighting occurred around 4 p.m. And the two witnesses were a young girl whose pseudonym is Faye, as she'll be called in the article, and also an unnamed boy about her age. And so they were just out playing, out wandering around in their town, and they came across something unusual. But first, they heard something unusual.
2: Yeah, so this sets the stage for the first segment of the Before article, which I'm going to read right now, just these first couple of lines, and then we can talk about the story as it's unfolding. This is uh, directly read from Oliver's article. Faye, or so we shall call her, was near Lake Common, Sandown, on a Tuesday afternoon about 4 o'clock with a boy about her own age when they both heard a weird wailing noise, not unlike an ambulance siren. They followed it across the golf links and through a hedge leading to a swampy meadow adjacent to little-used Sandown Airport, and the noise ceased. As they were crossing a wooden footbridge over a narrow brook, a blue-gloved hand appeared from under the bridge, and a strange figure emerged. The figure fumbled with a book, dropped it in the water, then splashed about to retrieve it. The two then watched the figure enter a metallic hut similar to those used on building sites, except that it had no windows. It moved along, not the hut, but the creature. It moved (laughs) along with a strange hopping motion with knees raised high. That's the first place I want to stop. Again, Faye is a pseudonym for the little girl. I wish to God we could track this person down Mm. for real. She's probably still around, still with us, I would hope. I'm only just a little bit older than her. So yeah. I'm, yeah,
1: hopefully she's still over there somewhere. But sorry, you know what'll happen though, Scott, is that yeah. about four months from now, we'll get an email saying like, I know who Faye is. Yeah, (laughs) that would be awesome. And uh, we will have already done the show, but uh, boy, I hope that happens. Just
2: location-wise, another thing that I want to point out about the location is the Isle of Wight is on the English Channel. It's north of France. It's about 90 miles or 140 kilometers north of France, right across Normandy, actually, is right across there. And it had a population in 2011 of about 5,000 people. I don't know what it was in the 70s. And to your point, Forrest, about where this happened, you can find that airport pretty easily on Google Earth. It's right there. So is the golf course. And based on the descriptions and where you see the houses are today, I'm thinking maybe they were where those homes were. And they moved between the golf course and the airport. They would have gone kind of due west. And I found a couple of brooks that might have been the brook that they went over the footbridge. But it's hard to see them because trees are growing, so any footbridge might be gone by now. But the satellite imagery on Google Earth goes all the way back to 1945, and you can still see the airstrip in 45 mm. and the homes. Not a lot has changed. There's more houses, but the footprint of the developed area hasn't changed much. So you can sort of narrow it down. I feel like if we went there, we might be able to figure out where they were, which I you know I would love to do. But And that was a Tuesday in early May of 73, can't say for sure exactly when, but so we got these two kids, they're crossing the footbridge and they see this blue gloved hand. In this first segment, and I just, I'm curious what you guys think about it, uh, Rob and Micah, with regard to the gloved hand, the fact that the thing was under a bridge and that it hops around, sounds like you're describing, uh, as, as you guys mentioned on Kryptonaut, Rob, a spaceman walking on the moon. Like, what do you guys make of this so far?
3: To begin with, let's start with the land of Nope that is a monstrous, (laughs) three-fingered clown coming up from under a bridge, troll-like and antic-filled. What's fascinating about this, I mean, besides the fact that you have this um, anomalous entity, which we'll be getting into the craziness of its description soon enough, but it's basically doing a Buster Keaton slash Harold Lloyd bit, fumbling (laughs) with a book, like almost like something you would do to make, you know, kids laugh, to put them at ease, now to what end We can only speculate, but it starts off with one of the most terrifying, you know, pre Stephen King's images, like I think it happened 13 years previous. Yeah, that's what you guys said on your episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And kids aren't necessarily having the same stigma of clowns back then that they would certainly have post the mid 80s. But to me, it's just like this horrifying yet antic filled introduction to this absolutely bizarre being. And it only gets stranger from there. It's almost apropos that it's so contradictory in terms of, I think as a child, I would have been both terribly intrigued and utterly horrified.
4: Couldn't say it better myself. You know, I mean, that's the whole thing. And I really enjoyed uh, Rob's breakdown on the CryptoNaut podcast. Very colorful. (laughs) Thank you. Not that this creature even needs any additional embellishment, as the dear listeners of Astonishing Legends are going to hear, because as we get more into detail about what this thing looked like, It's not the kind of thing that children are necessarily going to generally you'd expect run up and want to interact with as these children did. But again, this is prior to not only the publication of It by Stephen King, but this is also prior to the sort of enculturation of the idea of clowns as being scary that really starts to begin maybe in the 1980s and recent years going back to 2016. And we can talk more about this later. But, I mean, there have been some notable instances involving clown panics that actually went worldwide. The origin point had been very close to where we are uh, here in the Carolinas, Scott, but it ended up going worldwide. And so this was kind of great. Great.
2: Of course, it started here.
4: Of course. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) It's something that it might have been culturally before some of those instances. Now, nonetheless, I'll just add this. You take all the culture interpretations about clowns and things out of the picture Ask yourself at home, even in 1973, if the description that you're about to receive would have seemed in any way inviting to you as a child.
1: Uh uh. Oh, what's the matter? Don't you want a balloon?
4: (laughs) No! No, We were were just (laughs) I'll take no balloon from your three-fingered blue hand.
1: (laughs) One thing I'll say is that the story you're about to hear has so much to do with perception. And when these kids perceive this was a different time, and it has a lot to do with, I believe, how this thing presented itself to the kids, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, but keep that in mind, and that our perceptions are so much different now because of where we are culturally in the years since 1973, and back then, if you're old enough to remember, it wasn't a big deal to go to a circus or see a clown at a birthday party. It was a very common thing, and nobody really kind of thought it was creepy. Personally, as a kid, I didn't find them all that funny, but they were pleasant. They were enjoyable. They were part of the experience. And is that what this thing is trying to do in presenting this form? Or is that something the kids could understand? So as we pick up here again, just keep that in mind. Again, this was a culturally different time in how we view creatures that would appear like this. All right, so coming back to our
2: story, this is another part, and the reason I broke this at this particular section, because it amused me, is like, they, they then observed it going into the hut, and then the very next line of the story is, the children wandered off. <laughs> the children, they're like, they saw this thing, it came out from under the bridge, it's fumbling with the book, it goes in the hut, and they're like, ah, we're wandering off, they wandered off. So that's what it says here, the children wandered off and were over 50 yards away when the figure, which from now on will be referred to as he reappeared, carrying a black-knobbed microphone with a white flex attached. The wailing noise immediately returned, this time being so loud that the boy was scared and began to run away. The noise ceased, and he spoke into the microphone, and although so far the children could hear his voice as clearly as though he were right near them. Sorry, there's a little bit of a typo there. So he was far away, and this is what he said. Hello, are you still there? He asked. And in response to what sounded a friendly tone, they ventured close enough to speak to the oddly attired person. That's in quotes. So, yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this section. It's funny to me that they were leaving. That is very seven-year-old. It's like, oh, it went in the hut. Let's go over here. <laughs> it's like, is, is that a stick? <laughs> I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah,
0: what just, do
1: you do when it's outside of your range of uh, comprehension? Is that you yeah. either uh, freak out, run away, especially the sound, which was ambulance wailing like, as it was described, we're conditioned to know that from a very early age as an alert, like, watch out, get out of the way. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's, or is something... it feedback? Uh, well, it could be. I mean, this thing had a device in which it used to communicate at this juncture where it's far away, unless they didn't bother to describe it or, or couldn't describe it. They didn't say it sounded like a loudspeaker because this thing's at least 50 yards away and it's calling to them, but it sounded like if it was just right there. So now it's employing some kind of technology that at the time, even, was outside the realm now i have mentioned this on other shows i've attended a demonstration with a type of speaker that is a flat panel that is very directional and it can be beamed specifically to a person it's used often in trade show events to get people's attention and just kind of freak them out but it sounds like somebody's standing right next to you now i don't believe that was around in 1973 that's a within probably the last 10-15 years that technology has been developed Uh, It's used also on submarines to give commands so people don't have to wear headphones. They can be uh, receiving an audio message directly to them over a a long distance. So at this point, though, it's using some kind of technology, or is it beaming it into their heads? This friendly, hello, are you still there? The way they described it as being friendly. So it's not trying to frighten them, which we hear about so many uh, other encounters where something seems like it's trying to be friendly and ultimately scares adults. And like, don't be afraid. How can I get you to stop screaming? You know, it doesn't, (laughs) it at least knows that it's dealing possibly with children and it has to approach them in a certain way. And that's what it's trying to do is
3: interact. The least effective way to put someone at ease is to tell them while they're in a state of heightened horror to relax. (laughs) <laughs> Don't be afraid says the terrifying monster with ooze falling off of it is not the method you're going to use to actually calm someone down. So first off, that's a mistake right out the gate. What I find fascinating about this, just to digress a tiny bit to what you were saying initially to these children just wandering away or whatever is that and this is something as adults that we can maybe vaguely tap into, but it's very very difficult to recollect this feeling uh clearly and that is everything that happens is which is to say I don't know what's common or not. I'm still in the single digits. She, you know, is like about seven. The boy's about the same age. So if there's a clown and a metal shack on a golf course, I guess that's the golf course clown. And I guess it only needs three fingers. And now it has a Mr. Microphone and it can't tell if we're here or not. Like, I love the idea that these kids are not necessarily interpreting this as something as outright perplexing and absolutely bizarre as we as adults would perceive it because we have context for things. These kids, it might be like, okay, this is where the clown lives and that's just fine. And I think a, a lot of the ways they react is along those lines, but now you now you start getting into the fact that maybe this thing requires like hypertech to communicate or whatever. I actually find a lot of what these kids do to be completely acceptable in the context that I can vaguely remember being a kid. It's like, if this happened, it must be okay because it happened. Ergo, it's what's supposed to happen.
2: That's a great point. I'd notice that a lot of times just with my own son, who's, he's 11 now, but like riding around in the car or if we're watching something on TV and I'd be worried about the context of it, but then it's like so far outside his wheelhouse. I just do that sideways glance. It's like, uh-oh, do I have to explain an adult <laughs> concept here? And it's like, no, he didn't get the joke. It's good. <laughs> it's like- okay we're safe that's your whole world at that point because every experience is a new experience or so much more of them are yeah yeah Let's talk about this next segment here. Uh, He's getting kind of friendly, so they go back to him. Again, Stranger Danger, as you guys said on Kryptonaut, a very real thing, especially (laughs) these days. Uh, But then wandering off by yourself in the woods, it's like in America anyway, people aren't
1: letting their kids do that so much anymore. They they didn't uh, back then. Just, yeah, for the younger (laughs) set here, it's like it wasn't totally just, yeah, kids, go off and play with strangers. It's fine. It's 1973. We still knew I'm not saying
2: strangers, but I'm saying when I was young, I went out in the neighborhood and went wherever I wanted within like, you know, a six block radius, bicycle and on other people's lots and creeks and trails and whatever. And if you're in the right kind of neighborhood, you can still do that. But more people, I think, worry about it these days than they used to.
1: Yeah, I believe you you have to nowadays, of course. But back then, yeah, depending where you were, uh, there was uh, probably a lot more freedom given to kids to wander and explore, especially uh, in the more remote suburban areas here. And uh, as long as you were back at a certain time, you were given some freedom. And you were told about these kind of dangers, not to go off with strangers. Certainly when I was growing up, stranger danger was a thing. It probably didn't have that moniker. It was just don't talk to strangers and beware of uh, adults giving you candy. So you were aware of these things, but also uh, you probably had more trust, which is if you're trying to wonder now why these kids would do this, uh, at least go entertain this idea at all is that back then there was probably a lot more trust, especially for people living in areas which didn't see much crime.
4: You know, in 1973, England, uh, you would have to think that, you know, a golf course community there on a little island south of, you know, mainland England would have to be a slightly different cultural context in that era, right? A lot more approachability, a lot more trust, you know, kids staying out and playing. This was a, a while back. And again, you know, things have changed societally since that time. Yeah,
0: that's a good point.
2: Hi, I'm Vili, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. He was nearly seven feet tall and had no neck, for his head appeared to be wedged straight onto his shoulders. He wore a yellow pointed hat, which interlocked with the red collar of a green tunic. A round black knob was affixed to the top of his hat and wooden antennae were attached on either side. His face had a triangular markings for eyes, a brown square of a nose, and motionless yellow lips. Other round markings were on his paper-white cheeks and a fringe of red hair <laughs> fell onto his forehead. Wooden slats protruded from his sleeves and from below his white trousers. His first communication was in writing. He wrote in a notebook in a large hand, hello, and I am, all colors, Sam. The boy was hesitant, but Faye read each word as it was pointed to. This was necessary as the words were not laid out in conventional sequence. The thing that's, I mean, there's a lot in here to unpack, I guess, is mm. to everybody who uses the word unpack these days, but man... This thing is chalk a block with the triangular eyes, the mouth that doesn't move. Uh, hello, I am all colors, Sam. Okay, on that
1: point, before I forget, I, I just yeah. made a note here. Those key words here, tunic, yes. red and green, the collar attached to the tunic, and all colors. You know what that reminds me of? The Pied Piper. Oh, Yeah. The colors
2: yeah we just covered this a few months ago or yeah
1: and just that medieval description of him in in a, a two colored or brightly colored tunic of some kind that's a really good point forrest and what's he doing here he's leading children off
3: jacques valet would love that you know multi-generational yeah. <laughs> context and it's fascinating that would never even occur to me but this idea that it is reminiscent of something you know so far locked in the past but basically doing the same thing like you're saying tempting yeah. these children to come near it and having similarities though bizarrely like it would have been described differently like what, what's described as clothes right. in one context looks like a carved gigantic marionette with wooden parts yeah. or at least what a child perceives to be yeah. wooden parts and in an a mobile face it's fascinating when you look at it in a, a deeper context than just what was going on at that moment in the early 70s on the you know the Isle of Wight.
2: Yeah, and on top of that, I mean, us with your Pied Piper reference, the fact that they're drawn to it by a siren-like sound of some kind, and I'm using siren literally and figuratively there, in terms of however they were describing it, maybe it was a musical tone, it's, it, that aligns with the Pied Piper
1: as well. Yeah. Right, it was audio sound that was uh, drawing them, and of course the Piper has been described as playing something that was so enchanting. They could not help but follow him and dance and sing along. But in this description here, what, like what Rob just pointed out, you've got elements that are known throughout the ages, some parts being wooden, which you would not necessarily ascribe to, a future or alien creature of advanced uh, technology. But then you wonder if this exact thing, if it was Sam who was there in Germany in the Middle Ages, appearing to children, would they have described him the same way? Or is that how they would have seen him as, uh, well, yeah, we know what a tunic looks like. He's got a yellow pointed hat. He looks clownish or like a pied piper in that there's multicolors here, meaning to attract in some way. Is that what's going on? And the other thing is, is about the communication. It knows words, but it really can't put them in the right order. Or the words written down were out of order. And it has to point to, like a C and say, how it's trying to communicate with these kids. If it's writing them
2: down in the wrong order, how does it know which order to point to them <laughs> to read it?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Great. one of the
4: weird things that stood out to me too. Again, you know, we are told, hello, and I am all colors, comma, Sam. But they note here, and again, we'll probably discuss this more later on, but this was the account provided by the father of the girl to the UFO researcher in question. We'll right. go deeper right. into that a little later. But again, you know, so we're getting this secondhand hand. It's interesting to me how many of the details came out in the second head account because, yeah, she says the words were not laid out in any conventional sequence. But also on that note of the kind of weird combined archetypal elements of the unexplained, it's funny because in that segment of the Bufora Journal, that paragraph is titled, Seven Feet Tall, No Neck. I mean, if if you were giving me nothing more than that, I would say, is it a fast watch?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. But yeah. why does it have to describe itself as? I am all colors. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I can't even begin to speculate. Kids can
2: make pretty amazing stuff up, especially once they get up in their head from an imagination standpoint. And it's, it's something we can talk about later. But that particular phrasing, that sentence, it feels pretty far out there in terms of a detail for a story, in terms of fabrication. Because you might fabricate a lot of things as a kid that, about an encounter. And again, it's coming through the filter of being a kid and not having a lot of worldly experience. But that sentence, hello, and I am all colors,
1: Sam, is just really bizarre. That's what I meant at the, at the top of the show in my uh, rambly introduction, is that the what he says is just also so cryptic, but understandable in a way. It's not like it's a jumble of words or uh, Klaus niktu. It's things you can understand, but but what does he mean? And of course, now we're getting back to the uh, Indrid Cold. These are things that you could be, uh, have explained to you, but you're not going to understand them. And then also he's dealing with a seven-year-old child. So, uh, But why is that important to introduce yourself? Does he mean I am representative of all Races, colors, creeds. What does he mean by colors? Uh, And what is he trying to convey to the kids if this is just the most basic communication? So again, the first fascinating interchange here.
3: It seems like what he's saying is deeply symbolic, but that is also a very human... Piccadillo to want to look deeper into things. But what I find interesting about this is where it goes divergent from so many other ostensibly extraterrestrial encounters, in that it is not a telepathic communication. It is not like the standard set of protocols. It is writing in big letters in a book, and then being aware that somehow... What was written was not quite in the right way, so it almost seems like child-to-child communication to me in some Mm -hmm. ways, which is a grand speculation, I admit. What I'm most intrigued by is how this differentiates itself from many, many other accounts of how extraterrestrials allegedly attempt to communicate to human beings.
1: Micah, what do you make of the wooden antennae? As Rob said in his podcast, which I thought was a really funny joke, it's like, yeah, that's what you want to go to when you're using it's a, great a conductor, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
4: Well, they obviously aren't as functional, perhaps, as they are aesthetic. I would yeah. say this must have been a 1973 accessory uh, on part of our strange sandown clown. But then again, that's just speculation. Right, right. The children ventured
2: closer and discovered that the creature could talk without the aid of a microphone. Though his lips did not move and speech was unclear, rather like that of a person who does not open his mouth properly. He asked the children about themselves, so they ventured to ask questions too. They asked about his clothes, which were all ripped, and he told them he had only one set so he could only wear those. Because of his strange white features, they asked if he was really a man. The answer was a chuckled no. They also asked if he was a ghost. The vague reply was, well, not really, but I am in an odd sort of way. What are you then, they continued, but only obtained the answer, you know, with no further explanation. He also said he had no name. There were others like himself, though, and he drew a rough sketch of one of them. He also confided that he was frightened of people and scared they might hurt him. Apparently, if attacked, he would not fight back.
3: That's one of the sadder parts of the whole... I know. Oh my God, yeah. He's a seven foot tall, interdimensional Oliver Twist with his (laughs) panty clothes and, please sir, I have some more. I mean, your heart goes out completely to this thing.
2: Yeah, please don't hurt me. I'm afraid of
3: you.
1: And you know what teenagers would instantly do? Grab some sticks and beat that thing into a pulp like they did the traveling (laughs) robot. Yeah. Did you remember that story? That was just uh, from a year or two ago? Totally. I don't. What happened? I can't remember what corporation had built this thing. And and uh, it, it sounds um, by the uh, not knowing exactly how uh, brutal American culture can be like from a foreign nation. It's like, we're going to send this friendly robot out and it's supposed to be a hitchhiking robot. So maybe people will pick it up and travel. Yeah. With
2: here's it. the headline on CNN. Hitchbot, the hitchhiking robot gets beheaded in <laughs> Philadelphia. Yeah. I remember
1: <laughs> that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. August 4th, 2015. You're asking for that, I think, in, in this in this culture nowadays. But also out of, uh, that's people's first primal reaction is to react out of fear and then violence. Because you think like, I don't know what this is, I must kill it. So this thing obviously knows that, or it's got a sense of that. So he's frightened of adults. Now he's not frightened of children, because of course he, so he must understand or seemingly understand uh, human culture and and human nature at this point. And that's why he feels um, that he can approach children and maybe deliver a message to them, because it's something that children would understand, and if not understand, accept, and not react immediately with,
3: uh, we must burn it with fire. You know, pitchfork and torches, mob reaction. But I got to state, Just as being a devil's advocate, it is also a really good way to make yourself seem vulnerable and therefore more endearing if you are some kind of predatorial entity that is trying to uh, get these other creatures to align themselves with you. So while my heart goes out and I'm madly empathetic and every ounce (laughs) of me that grew up loving the Twilight Zone knows you don't judge a book by its cover, you know, it's (laughs) the, the thing that's the most hideous looking might be the most helpful There's that other part of me that still has that primal human sense of, but still, it's what he's saying. Right. We don't really have any proof of that. Sure.
1: Well, speaking of speech, going back to the, the top of the passage here, it now sounds like at least speech or sound, maybe much like a robot and not a biological creature that uses breath and flesh and tongue and lips to make words. Sound is coming out of it. Speech is coming out of it but it doesn't open its mouth properly and it sounds a little muffled. So it's not precisely like a a robot that we could build nowadays, which would have perfect audio coming out of it. But somehow it's able to do this, or maybe that, again, that's the perception of these children is that it's garbled. They can understand that. And this thing is not speaking properly like uh, its mouth wasn't working properly.
4: You know, what's also interesting too is the description given that it draws what one of its compatriots is said to look like, but there's no description given of what that looked like. I mean, was it similar to Sam, for lack of a better name? for this Yeah. Name, or was it similar to something else? Or was it completely different? Did it look like a flying saucer? <laughs> I would be interested in knowing what the companion was said to resemble in the drawing.
1: Right, because, you know, I think that's also human nature, especially with sci-fi and how we view it, is that everything that's from another planet or uh, every every type of alien, they all look the same. They're all wearing the same outfit, at least again that's the image that we get from television and movies is that uh, they're all kind of unified in a certain way homogeneous and now from the stories we we've known well maybe there are different levels of types of aliens in 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 the classical sense of you know grays and large praying mantis overlords humanoid types and so we we've really expanded our our vision of that but just as you said Mike is this thing drawing a picture of something that's like, well, here's another example of something that is one of us, but not exactly like me, because obviously you can see me. So here's something else to maybe describe to you that is something that's maybe part of our race, quote unquote. Yeah. And the fact that it's like, and I got the one set of duds. So yeah, they got kind of beat up. It's really hard to get people to make something for my size. (laughs) That's also another fascinating real world, a physical world type of thing. It's like- is he trapped here? Can he not go back? You look at that in The Matrix, it's like all their clothes are ripped up. Why? Because it's hard to make clothes five miles down underground when you can't grow cotton and, uh, and flax and other things to make uh, fibers to make clothes. They're just repairing what they have. This thing is apparently on its last set of duds. It almost opens
3: up the possibility, yeah. uh, are we dealing perhaps with refugees? Like you say, people very limited resources, people that have to remain concealed for the most part, because going back, taking Sam at his word, human beings Mm -hmm. are terrifying. We are very territorial and predatorial and violent towards things we don't understand. And unfortunately, that's such a deep set part of the human condition. It would not take an alternative intelligence very long to realize that if there's one thing you should avoid is making yourself vulnerable in front of a human being. So that really makes you question, like, is he and his compatriots who are settled in some you know, place on the the mainland, are they, which I think we'll get to in a second, are they, like I say, refugees, emigres, or something that are just trying their best to, you know, make do on a world that for whatever reason or plane of existence or dimension yeah. that they are somehow stuck in?
2: I had posited this theory, and I've mentioned this before when talking about Skinwalker, because when you look at Skinwalker, you know, the science, they, a couple of these scientists had witnessed this tube that was three-dimensional from one way and two-dimensional from the side that was spitting things out, including a large, hairy creature. I had posited this theory that, like, whatever was happening was, maybe it was a technical phenomenon or maybe it was a natural phenomenon that these creatures were taking advantage of, but they didn't really themselves understand how it worked or they weren't in control of how it worked. So when they passed through this portal, they didn't know how to get back or how to open it up when they needed to. They're just kind of bouncing around like the hitchhiking robot that got beheaded in Philadelphia, (laughs) just you know, some in hoping someone will take it to a baseball game. So it's it's so bizarre, man! It's bizarre. I
3: bring
1: you love,
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) It brings love. Kill it, yeah. (laughs) Kill everything that love. But but think about this way: it's like the flip end of like all of those great old pieces of lore where. Fairy folk abduct humans or human beings slip through mm-hmm. these portals into these yeah. other worlds and maybe they're there for what seems like six hours and partying around a fire and drinking a frog and whatever. And then they come back and it's 26 <laughs> years later and, you know, their grandkids are, you know, adults. And so who's to say that the phenomenon doesn't work the same way? for these otherworldly entities where they're just as perplexed. And they're like, "What? how did we end up in this place full of like, you know, cars and mayhem and hairless apes and what the hell is going on? (laughs) You know, I mean, we always assume that they're smarter and they're coming here intentionally, but there's really no reason to assume that every visitor is cut from that cloth. Yeah,
1: it does have an air that uh, this thing may be stranded. I'm totally on board with that. It's one of the few last of its kind it doesn't know how to get back. It doesn't really know who to ask to help. And the only thing it can think to talk to are these kids that come by that it feels safe with. Or it's got, as you said, Rob, maybe on the flip side, it's got some other reasoning that is not so nice, but it is enticing these kids with things that it knows it needs to say. Much like a, a you know, now the oft mentioned crying baby mm. will upset people or draw them closer. And is that the reason for that? Or is it actually a, a natural noise or a cry for help or a, a something uh, beckoning people to come near.
2: At his invitation, the children crawled through a flap into his hut, which contained two levels. The lower had plenty of headroom and was wallpapered in blue-green and covered with a pattern of dials. It also had an electric heater and simple wooden furniture. The upper level was less spacious and the floor was metallic. He told the children that he fed upon berries, which he collected in the late afternoon. He didn't say where, but did indicate that he had a camp on the mainland he could go to. He also said that the water from the river could be drunk once he had cleaned it. Once inside the hut, he removed his hat to reveal round white ears and sparse brown hair. Before eating a berry, he performed an odd conjuring trick He placed the berry in his ear, thrust his head forward and caused the berry to disappear and reappear at one of his odd eyes. Repeating the process, the berry traveled to his mouth. And then parenthetically, Oliver writes, A possible explanation could be that he was wearing some kind of protective mask and analyzing the berry to check it wasn't poisonous. I
4: like that one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of questions here. At no point do we see any flesh of this thing. It's because everything's covered, right? We've got the gloves, the wood, the the head. Like, what is inside of Sam, the sand down clown? What's in there, especially if berries are passing through his head? You know, there's a lot of things going on here in his house. He's got the wallpaper with the dials. Like, what is that? And again, I'm trying to think like a seven-year-old describing whatever they saw, an electric heater, which again, maybe a little boy or a little girl didn't know what it was, but it looked to them like an electric heater, wooden furniture. Also, he's purifying water. Maybe that was why he was under the bridge down in the creek, was collecting Mm. some
1: water to drink. I don't know. A couple of things to consider here in, in referring to the previous passage is that this thing is now, from what it explains, when the kids ask it, are you a man? are you something biological that we can understand? And he's like, (laughs) again, going back to, I just love these replies was, well, not really, but I am in an odd sort of way. And then uh, I just love how this may have sounded to the kids. Uh, Well, what are you then? And he continued, well, you know, (laughs) well, no, we don't know. That's why we're asking. Like, what, (laughs) what, what are you? But obviously he's intimating that he is also on some level, maybe a spiritual being. I am in an odd sort of way. Does that mean he can travel between our physical plane and his realm, or that he's kind of in a liminal space where he exists in both? But obviously, he needs to drink water. He needs to eat berries. He's also implying that he can travel to the mainland of England. That's also interesting. If that's what he says, that he has a way to get to the mainland, where maybe he gets more resources. But how does he get across that expanse of water between the island and mainland England? what is going on here? And all we know is from the, the, the clues. Like, he needs a heater. So there are things that are physical about him.
4: Yeah, you know, one aspect, though, is this, of course, being a Huvian reminds me very much of Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which would have been a popular television program at that time. And one of the things that uh, is striking about it in that Hoovian sense of things is the sort of anachronistic pairing of if we were to interpret this as being something or some entity and it's, whatever you want to call this environment that it has. We refer to it as a shack. But again, what was that really? Is this a technological presence? And if so, how are things in that environment being interpreted differently relative to the children in their frame of reference from what they might actually be? But again, on Doctor Who, you often have this sort of pairing of anachronistic elements, you know, old Victorian right. furniture and things inside of a spaceship that is bigger on the inside. I yeah. specifically think of periods where Tom Baker, uh, the fourth Doctor's, the interior of his TARDIS was very Victorian looking, <laughs> right. despite being yeah. a very advanced spacecraft. So there are sort of elements of that going on here as well.
3: There absolutely are. And and I totally do what you're saying. As a fellow Hoovian, I, I love it. And, and the idea that there are these anachronistic elements. Here's the thing. I don't think a child, even a child that's raised with Doctor Who, especially of that age, would be quick to assimilate the idea of putting the antediluvian with the hypermodern. I think they're just doing their best to observe what's going on. But then that makes you have to question if this thing is an entity from an advanced culture, though there's really nothing to indicate that. Then why would they, you know, just have simple wooden furniture? Why would they have just a general space here? Why would half of their suit be apparently made up, you know, (laughs) be made out of oak or maple or whatever? These are not the things we associate with high technology. And so if they are anachronisms, and I think the, the kids are doing their best just to describe it. But what I'm also fascinated about is the interior of this shack or disguised vehicle or who knows what it is, where it almost seems like they're decals <laughs> on like the inside of Castle Grayskull <laughs> or something. Like it's a child's play place, and the technology is really just stickers, and you're using your imagination. And then your mind spirals off. is this just a way to try to impress these people that there's something going on or are they in such an advanced you know society or species that the imagination itself is how you interact with technology. So while it seems fake or just old-fashioned to us, it really is something they can interact with in a way that's so sophisticated that we would find it unfathomable because how human technology works is it becomes more metallic, more plastic, smaller, more more chips, and and then we build and build until Moore's Law says, screw you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's how it works across the board for every intelligent society.
1: Rob, I yeah, I, I you just yeah. triggered something uh, that I thought was fascinating, and that's the use of imagination necessary in operation of their their technology or understanding them. And that, and again, we go back to this. Uh, I, I, this might be apocryphal, but I I love the quote. It's like that that old story about Ben Rich, I believe, uh, of Skunkworks fame giving a lecture and, and talking about UFOs and, and this and that. And he was stopped in the parking lot by two young uh, attendees and uh, they might have been journalists. And they asked him like, Mr. Rich, like, okay, how does a UFO work? And he says, do you know what ESP is? They go, yeah. I said, that's how they fly. That's been my theory all along. Things don't get more complicated. You don't really need more complicated dials that do more things and, and knobs and levers. And certainly we've, we've heard of that. Even some encounters of people being on uh, supposedly on advanced ships but really, I love the idea that what's needed more is your mind and your imagination to work these things. And that's how they communicate. And, and it's like a graphic user interface. When you go to uh, turn a knob on your very expensive digital audio workstation on your screen, you're not actually turning a knob. It's a virtual knob. Is is this whole right. world, is, some of these representative things, activating something that has, a, has a, a real effect, but it's not the interface that we would expect or become accustomed to. Michael, what are your thoughts on the surroundings and, and the the types of uh, technology that we're seeing here?
4: Well, a couple of things that come to mind are the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey, right? Where yeah. the environment is made to look Victorian or, you know, some semblance of that, you know, this very classy kind of posh, but very earthly environment so that you are comfortable as the alien. And here's the weird thing: everything about this, and again, as you know, Rob Rob has really kind of illustrated for us in his retellings of the story, both uh, on the mic and in print. Nothing about this experience should necessarily be comforting or comfortable. The children do try to run away in a couple of instances, but that's mostly because they're hearing siren-like sounds and they're literal warning, warning, danger, will Robinson kind of instances. But you know, nothing about the environment seems to frighten them. You know, I can't help but wonder talking about the imaginative component there, is it because the environment that they are seeing is something that is perceived only the way that they experience it is their recollection of what they saw their own personal experience. And that was maybe even something that was generated. That was like a user interface kind of generation on their Mm -hmm. part. And that hence, explains their level of comfort with the environment. Again, yeah. all working on the premise that this is indeed something extraordinary and not a seven-foot-tall creep in a clown suit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that could be it, too. That's, 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 uh, that's you know, the
4: one that troubles me. That's the, the worst <laughs> hypothesis, but strangely also perhaps maybe the most likely.
2: <laughs> how would a seven-year-old, if they walked into an environment where and it looked like Minority Report or a, a 80-inch plasma screen, how would they describe it? as wallpaper with knobs or, you know, it would be something outside the realm of comprehension. So it could also just be misinterpretation
1: as a child. Jeez. And and just thinking about strange creatures uh, and beings of the Victorian age, there's Spring Hill Jack. England is rife with uh, all sorts of uh, odd anomalous, uh, I wouldn't even call this a cryptid. It seems to be something else. And that's also what it's getting at, it does have a sense of humor. If you, if you take that, that chuckling, like, are you a man? (laughs) Well, no, no, I'm not really, (laughs) but, but I might be part ghost.
4: Forrest, you raise a really interesting point. And I thought about this too, though. Again, the, we don't have the intonation. We don't know what it sounded like. I mean, we might imagine a robotic kind of very monotone voice, but what did it sound like when it said, well, I'm not really a ghost, but kind of sort of in a way, but well, what are you, you know? I mean, was it, was it a, you know, or was it, you know, or was it, you know,
3: <laughs> it's a, it, a little, right. a little bit of the Inflection second and a third. Yes, completely missing,
2: Yeah. Right. It's like a bad text conversation
1: where you accidentally insult your best <laughs> well, friend. That's, right? exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's how I tend to, you know, look, that's how I use my imagination. And, and if I heard this story as a kid, I would immediately ride my bike over to that spot to see if I could see it again. That's... You know, that's just me. And again, that's how my imagination worked as a kid. And then uh, there's other kids who would uh, go run home. And and that's probably the the best option and the safest option. But the story is also about how these kids interact with it, which also, I think, determines how this creature interacted with them. You're right. It's like the the most common logical thing would be like, yeah, there is a weirdo who has some technological advancement, somehow maybe like Spring Hill Jack, who is much described as a man but had things that were far beyond Victorian technology at the time. And the, the descriptions there get even wilder. A, a beam that shot from his chest that kind of stunned people. He had all these strange sparking powers of, of some sort. Plus he could leap impossible bounds. Pew blue flames. Exactly. Shoot blue
3: flames. He was like mid '60s Marvel characters <laughs> yeah. in their prime. Like I expect Jack Kirby to be writing them and or drawing them, and Stan Lee to be having them spouting all kinds of you know <laughs> Middle Europe kind of epitaphs. And that's where it becomes like this strange paradigm because, in much the same way as Spring Hill Jack, like you say, and maybe even others like the Mad mm-hmm. Gas or Matu, there seems to be this paradigm shift in that. It's not what we would expect. We expect it to be, you know, fairly advanced. We expect it to have highly technology because it manifests it, but it also has these really backwards Mm -hmm. elements, both in its behavior and the technology. And to go back again to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, where, you know, are you a ghost? Well, not really. It's almost playing with the thought that it might be non-corporeal. Like you have this thing that maybe it's contained, maybe it's an energetic being, maybe it's a spiritual being, maybe it's just a form of intelligence that is somehow occupying something that looks like a giant wooden clown nightmare marionette. (laughs) And and, and you don't know how to interact. But then you have to throw in the fact that, oh, wait, it needs to purify its water and it needs some sort of berry nutrition. So then you're like, well, that implies something corporeal or at least something that has appetites. And you're like, do you have to feed the machine? Is it some weird conversation? So your mind keeps spinning out of control because it's not a convenient step. Like, it's really easy to think, okay, it's a time traveler. It's us in the future fine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an alien. They're more advanced than us. You know, the simple basic paradigms were taught when all of us first, you know, dip our toes into the paranormal lore. And we like to have things encapsulated as human beings. And like, this is what a cryptid is. This is what an alien is. But when you get into these super high strangeness cases like Sam, all of a sudden, all of that goes out the window because it challenges your perceptions on everything. And then in the end, all you're really struggling with is this thing was trying to communicate with these kids. So what was the deeper purpose of that? Because in the end, you're hoping that if you can glean some of its motivation, then maybe the rest of it will start coming into place because it is so incoherent and so uh, illogical, at least based on where we're at and the paradigms of technology that we currently embrace, that it's a constant struggle, which is what makes this so fascinating and yet freaking frustrating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, it's a thing with the mask, and that uh, again, maybe she's uh, like '70s sci-fi, and that uh, what it's doing with the mask. I thought that was an interesting uh, insight. Perhaps it's some kind of filtering device or a- analyzing device that maybe, like a robot, would use to make sure that the the berries could be ingested and and uh, were nourishing to this creature but why does it need berries like you said if it, it just why doesn't have protein bars i had those as a kid remember those uh, little space food tubes because uh, that was a big thing when i was growing up absolutely it's the predecessor of uh, of the granola bar it's just that uh, they all tasted the same it was just it was called astronaut food or whatever it was just a a tube of of nutrient why is it uh, doesn't run out of those <laughs> because, like you said, it's trapped here. So it's got to analyze stuff. And obviously, you can filter water. But going back to like what Scott was saying about the Skinwalker Ranch, and it also it just now reminded me when, you know, Rob, when you talk about uh, uh, like a, a spirit being of some kind or an elemental in some fashion, is that um, all these things need to feed. So I just got done wrapping up watching uh, The Outsider, and, and as, as powerful as this kind of creature was, it needs to feed. The giant wolf beast, if it's still transitional, uh, a a human, uh, and it's just in a kind of a a black magic state, it still needs to eat. Everything needs to feed at some point. Everything needs energy. It's all got to keep operating. Nothing really is perpetual except for the robots uh, that run on nuclear power in our sci-fi. So it's just another fascinating element that's uh, yeah, that grounds it to the world here that we know that that kids can kind of understand. And and like I said, it, it they know what berries are, and they can guess that these are knobs in the wallpaper. So there are a lot of identifying factors that tie it to our real world here.
3: Oh, absolutely. And like you say, uh, be it machine, even fantastical machines still require said nuclear energy or yeah. biologic. You need some sort of sustenance. You need some sort of fuel. This is just the way physics and biology works, at least as far as we know. Now, there might be realms, sub quantum realms, interdimensional realms, where the rules are completely different. And mm-hmm. we're trying to ascribe to these things motivations they simply don't have or needs they don't require. But that's okay because we have to work within the limited framework we're given, as broad as that limited framework may be. And so by approaching it this way, we might be left with more questions, but at least it gives us a starting point. We can think, you know, again, what parts of it seem to be corporeal, what parts of it seem to be non maybe spiritual or or energetic or or whatever. And like I say, just try to create a theory because that's what we were monkeys that have hypotheses. That's mm-hmm. the deal. What is going on with this and you know, why it's not like say making itself more known or approaching scientists or seeking help or why is it doing what it's doing? And why is it two kids on a golf course?
4: Well, because if you've read any Stephen King novels, it's always two kids on a golf course. That's how the always <laughs> <laughs> One
3: of them's not going to make it
1: probably. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that people have to band together to, uh, it's only when we come together Uh, where we are at our worst in a lot of his stories and also where we are able to figure things out and, uh, and overcome them. linkedin jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience in fact 86 percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com spoken that's linkedin.com spoken terms and conditions apply
2: hello everyone i'm zane exactly and this is astonishing legends let's get back to the show The children talked to this strange being for half an hour or more. Then, after saying goodbye, they rushed across the golf links to tell the first man they met that they'd seen a ghost. He merely laughed, but the children were convinced of their experience and that the being was either a ghost or someone dressed up. So that's a short little piece there before we get into like the wrap up from Norman Oliver who wrote that for before a... but i think that's interesting uh, the the first thing that jumped out at me there was uh they spent 30 minutes with this thing like yeah. what happened what did they talk about
3: that is the source of so much frustration for me i have yeah. nothing but the utmost respect for all of these investigators who came before we you know we stand on the the shoulders of giants and legends some are obscure some are well known but we owe like pretty much our fascination in this field, and all of the information we get to them. But that having been said, one of the things that I try to do, and I'm sure all of you as well, I try to do the one thing that I'm infuriated by whenever I encounter a case like this, and suddenly you get, and the dialogue lasted for another half hour, and I won't bother (laughs) to mention a word of what it was. Yeah. Because who would care? I pick brains so much so that when I talk to an eyewitness, we're either best friends or they will never return my calls again. (laughs) Because I want to get every just bit of minutiae that might be a part of it in the hopes of putting it down historically so that the next generation can read it and find out. And this, I got to say, when I read the original before report, before, you know, we did our pod and I wrote my article, uh, I was like, you cannot just say this. That is such a jerk move. That's exactly what I thought. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought.
1: What do you mean 30 minutes? Yeah, it's, sir, you have exactly described our podcast, the excruciating minutiae <laughs> of every topic we cover, but a lot of it's just for our own record of sorts. And, uh, you know, the, the, the webpage for each episode is the same way. We put down every link that we possibly come across because it should be documented. It Absolutely, is- It should be documented. You know, again, that's something
4: I've always liked about you guys, your podcast. And when I hear other people mention it, they always say the same thing. They're like this show, they go deep. They have dug up stuff and it goes beyond just podcasting for the sake of entertainment. Again, it is documenting, The evidence. It is documenting the history. It is documenting the experience. And so, again, in the 1970s, you know, the British UFO Research Association, maybe they weren't as interested. But if this report had come to me, I don't want to Mm -hmm. presume that they weren't as interested, you know, but but again, these days, it seems that the standards of documentation have changed. And I think that one good evidence for that is the way that modern researchers, okay, and I do a little of this myself, we like to go back and we like to—you guys do this actually a lot on your show. You find the original witnesses and you you interview them and see if there's anything that was left out of the original narrative. Now, why do more researchers today seem to do that? You know, whether it's a case like Cash Landrum or it's a case mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. one or it's Pascagoula, whatever else, it's because you want to go back and see, first of all, if there's anything that was not recorded the first time, if there's anything that has you know been forgotten but that actually was recorded and could be unearthed again, or— If there is something that in the modern context might be revisited and seen through the lens of modernity, and it would give us clues to something that was overlooked at the time. I mean, the list could go on, but here, yeah, you spent 30 minutes and I'm getting, uh, yes, no, maybe, you know, surely there was more dialogue. There had to have been more observed. But now something that really stands out to me too is in the goodbye moment, the children were convinced here, according to the report of their experience and that the being was either a ghost or someone dressed up. Now, something that's mm-hmm. really weird to me is that, I mean, it's obviously implied and and it's, you know, the, the entity Sam is sort of remembered as the sand down clown, but the children always seem to be asking, are you a ghost or a spaceman or a person dressed up? But they don't ever explicitly say, well, it was a big clown, but the clown acted like, you know, they don't, their yeah. inclination doesn't seem to be that Sam was a clown. Right. But I'm struck by that Again, convinced of their experience and that the being was either a ghost or someone dressed up. Those two conclusions, that's very interesting to me. They seem to be open to the idea that someone was pranking them, but that seems to speak to the validity of the experience, that there was something tangible that they experienced. I was
1: uh, born in 1965 and in 1973, I was very well aware and was a huge fan of sci-fi UFOs. It was certainly uh, part of the popular culture, especially in the seventies. Is if you're, you know, if you can imagine everything that was kind of going on, it was a rebirth. And, and these things seem to go in cycles uh, as far as uh, cultural popularity goes. And definitely, spaceman or clown would have been one of my possible descriptors to choose from. And what they settled on was okay, weird dude in suit or ghost yeah. that is such an, uh, an interesting insight in that something led them to believe in their 30 plus minutes of interaction with this thing that it was not totally there in the way that ghosts are not totally there yeah he looks solid obviously he's splashing around he dropped his book also the descriptions are are weird in that they would be more physical i think rob in in your coverage you said that there were three white toes on these bear these dirty bear alien
3: clown feet yes And and, and So here's the thing, like there are all these tangibles is one of the most detailed, you know, uh, descriptions of a, you know, apparently non-human intelligence that has come down the pike. But it makes me wonder if there were elements of the fantastic that just somehow got lost in translation, because much like you were saying, they seem to really be gravitating towards some sort of phantasmic sort of interpretation of what's going on. Like, yes, it could be a dude in this crazy suit, very tall dude or someone on stilts, but they want to, and and this could be just their predisposition. This could be the culture in which they were raised in. This could be just their parents' belief systems. There's a lot of things that we don't know, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that could help explain why they lean towards a paranormal explanation. But there's part of me that thinks, is there something did it, it I mean it never phases in and out or anything like that they describe, but one thing seems pretty clear, especially from the Barry incident, is that there weren't eyes behind the triangular holes mm-hmm. they didn't see lips or teeth moving behind you know the immobile mouth and 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 even though what we describe really seems to be mask like be it you know an environmental suit that somehow has this like anachronistic quality or just something that's purely aesthetic, but the way the kids describe it almost always seems to be as its face, not as something Mm -hmm. it wore over its face, but as its literal face. So there's something that makes your mind race. You know, we're all investigators and fascinated with the unknown. I'm not trying to speak for anyone but me, but I'm pretty sure you guys all feel engaged by it. The descriptions are so clearly specific as to, you know, these little patterns on its cheek and whatnot. But they're also so uh, vague about whether or not it is an outfit or or mm-hmm. it's flesh and whether or not there is something more uh specter like going on. I loathe. I I literally loathe reading in between the lines because to me that <laughs> is the antithesis of, you know, what we're doing. And, you know, I, I always right. call myself a crypto historian and, and less a cryptozoologist because to me it's about getting the facts down to the best of your ability. And to that end, I hate that this case makes me want to read between the lines and say, what is going on here? Did the skin yeah. move on the face? Is, is there something going on that made these kids really want to think that something truly supernatural was transpiring?
4: Yeah. And Rob, let me just add too. Uh, at one point, the children, did they not remark how impressed they were at the fact that the mouth didn't seem to move when the thing was talking?
3: Exactly. And now if they just thought it was a dead up mask, they would have said, and, you know, we couldn't see anything moving behind the the face plate or whatever. At least I'm thinking they would. So Mm -hmm. the fact that they're like, oh, it's talking and much like a great ventriloquist, its lips aren't moving. But as anyone that, you know, sees the original uh, illustration that graced the cover of the before a journal that this first appeared in or the illustration I did, you know, many years later, will see that these are not prototypical lips or features It is geometric shapes that seem to be sort of like a wooden doll approximation of a clown. And yet the the fact that, like you just said, Michael, that they're impressed that the lips weren't moving implies that there seemed to be something, at least to their perception, biological.
4: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, another comparison might be that apart from being clown-like, it's almost, and I don't hear people actually make this comparison, but my uh, lovely assistant and dear friend Lauren has It's almost scarecrow like, right? Like a scarecrow Mm -hmm. that you would see in a field, uh, in the sense that the raggedy clothes, clown like features, you know, being tall like this. So uh, there's there's a scarecrow esque kind of element, too. Yeah. No matter how you shake it, this thing sounds like a great Halloween story.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously, your listeners will have had an opportunity to see this, uh, you know, before we're talking about it, hopefully. And so it is so strange. I think it's a postscript interpretation, maybe by the initial investigators, that it's clown-like because yeah. that does not seem to be as Mike and you guys mentioned earlier where the kids' interpretation mm-hmm. was headed.
2: Well, I want to read Norman Oliver's wrap-up to the Before a Journal entry here, uh, and this will be the and then we can uh, get down to really breaking it down a little further. But here's the finish on this. Faye told her father of her experience some three weeks later on the second of June, nineteen seventy-three. At first, he found the story quite unbelievable, but was amazed at the detailed account and Faye's certainty to its truth. She was quite upset when he suggested she'd made it up or invented it. Mr. Y, that's Faye's dad, as they called him in this, for whatever reason, (laughs) they called him in this, Mr. Y saw the boy, but found him not easy to communicate with, though he did get a statement from him verifying that he'd seen it too. Apart from make-believe, Other possibilities considered included a shared hallucination and a deliberate hoax by someone. There was such an extraordinary amount of detail, however, which would include the further point that the creature clearly had only three fingers on each blue-gloved hand and three toes on his bare white feet, making a deliberate hoax somewhat difficult. And indeed, why go to all that trouble? Mr. Y tells me that although bizarre, certain elements of the story rang true to him, and he also took account of the possibility of some connection with his own previous experiences, which we'll talk about in a minute. Summing up, he says, I get the impression that Fay was somehow taken into a bubble of alien reality created by this strange personage. He told them he had just made the hut. Also, Faye told me that while they were talking to this ghost... Two workmen nearby were repairing a post. They paid no attention to the weird charade as though they could not see it. Oliver wraps up with, well, ghost, spaceman, imagination, hoax, or hallucination. Take your pick. Just a child's make-believe? Perhaps, but there are a number of unusual elements in the story, and it is very detailed. Remember, too, that quite a percentage of reports of sightings come from children. The Welsh flap is a case in point. In particular, the box-dropping incident, and the humanoid report from Broadhaven School. One last point, Mr. Y visited the spot but could find no metal hut anywhere in sight, nor any indication of one, not really surprising, no matter in what light one views the children's story. For to make a comparison, how often are traces found in reported UFO landings? And it ends with,
1: this is such a great sign-off, the case rests. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I wish we'd thought of that.
2: Ah, The case rests.
1: Yeah. Perhaps it's you.
4: Perhaps it's you. If you or anyone you know has any information leading to the discovery of the Sandown (laughs) Clown, contact Astonishing Legends. And then Broadhaven,
2: I love that there's something that we've actually covered. And that goes back to something that we brought up before about things appearing in front of kids, which I love those stories.
3: Yeah, like the Casablanca entities. That to me (sighs) is another one where the high strangeness is so extreme and so cinematic, actually, that it's, it's a mind blower. You either have to take it as de facto evidence of just how utterly bizarre the universe we live in can be, or just a fever dream plague that created mass hysteria in a small California neighborhood in the in 1950s. You know, yeah, yeah. My co host, good buddy Mark Storrs, who does Cryptnot Pod with me, he calls it the whimsy of a child, which is basically mm. his friendly way of saying kids make stuff up and they can be pretty brilliant about it. I tend to think that, yes, there's obviously that element. Kids can be brilliant and imaginative. But in some of these cases, the one we're talking about today in particular, it seems like there isn't a lot of exaggeration there. It seems like there's not a lot of speculation either on the part specifically of Faye, though I grant that we are getting this secondhand through her father and we don't know anything from the boy's perspective. But it seems like it's just an accounting of the facts as she interpreted them, which to me lends at least a touch of veracity in that it doesn't seem to be a yarn that spun. But that having been said, the idea of, again, I'm a concrete guy. I started off as a cryptozoology junkie. I love the monsters. I love the idea of things being corporeal and just a part of the natural fauna of our world that has not been academically described. But the more you study these different phenomena, these disparate phenomena, and the and the broader, you know, spectrum you go with it, you know, first I went to ufology and other things, the pattern most of us take, the more you begin to think that a lot of this perhaps somewhat in a Jungian sense, but even in a more cut-and-dry sense, is perception-based, like you guys were saying earlier. And yeah. that this phenomenon might be real, bona fide, unverifiable, but God's honest truth, but done in such a way that it is a chemical or synaptic or electrical energetic interaction with the human mind that can manifest itself in maybe some physical ways, but not necessarily in ways that leave traces. And of course, if that's the case, not only is it science beyond, you know, mm-hmm. to the point where Arthur C. Clarke would absolutely deem it magic, you know, as this famous yeah. quote was, indistinguishable from, you know, science far enough advanced, yeah. indistinguishable mm-hmm. from. But that having been said, it makes it almost like we're either living in a world of infinite, joyous, ecstatic possibilities or a world of infinite Dante-esque terrors that can <laughs> rain upon us, given the whims of these superior intelligences at any given time. Both fascinating and horrifying, granted, but to me, that's interesting, the idea that the kids saw it to grind it grind it back down to the, the reality of the situation, but the handyman nearby did not.
4: Yeah, yeah. Rob, you remember um, the television show back in the day, Quantum Leap? Of course. (laughs) I'm sure all you guys do. I mean, again. Oh, yeah. yeah. used to see him
2: at the grocery store.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Scott (laughs) Bakula. And and the only real connection I want to make here is that here you've got a character named Sam, and here we have, Mm -hmm. right, this weird ghost clown spaceman also named Sam. No, I'm kidding. No, the, 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 (laughs) the connection being- He's gone back. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the kid, you know, kids were the ones who were able to see Sam on the Quantum Leap show for who he was. The premise being that, you know, the young mind hasn't been conditioned enough to reality that they aren't able to, you know, see a level of reality that adults, you know, it's beyond their perception. And being young and pure of heart, the children are still able to have that experience. Right. That really seems to be, I mean, that motif extends well beyond just the program Quantum Leap, but it certainly is implied here that these children are aware of something happening in the environment that nearby observers or would-be observers couldn't even perceive.
2: I'm going to read you a little story here, just a short little thing here. This story is from October 1962. It's about a little boy who saw a man who, quote unquote, walks in the treetops, wears a silver hat, has 12 extra hands, and blows smoke from his ears, <laughs> and jingles when he walks as if he had rings on his fingers and bells on his toes. That sounds pretty crazy, right? So yeah. that is a description of an episode of Andy Griffith oh. called oh. <laughs> Mr. McBeevy." and this was a season opener apparently they always opened with an opie story where opie was out in the woods by himself and he saw this guy and that's the way he described him but what he was was a lineman he was up on telephone poles and he had a silver hat and extra gloves and he blew some cigarette smoke into his hand and then made it look like it was coming out of his ear and he went and told his dad all this stuff and and uh, barney Fife or whatever and they were like you're crazy
4: this is ridiculous <laughs>
2: But that was Opie's perception yeah. of the lineman. See, that's
4: yeah. a fascinating point.
2: <laughs> yeah, You know? So, but that's not a case of like made up buildings that disappeared or or the other factors here. Like, I mean, and of course that's fictional, but it, it does, it's, I'm sure based on the experiences that the writers had with their yeah. own kids or like just a perception of like, what does this thing look like to this child? Right. And so that's, what's really hard for us to know what actually happened. Because of all those filters, and we talked about it a while ago, Rob, you brought it up too, uh, just about that for them, it's like there's every, every day is a bevy of new experiences, never before experienced things when you're a kid, especially at the age of seven. So of course. how do you
1: bring that back to the adults? Well, I would say you then have to look again as a, a researcher, a kitchen counter psychologist, pay attention to the wording how are these things described? And in between Opie, and I'm sure uh, the, <laughs> the the question is, you know, Mr. Opie, please put me in your movies when you're 40. Uh, <laughs> the idea, though, is that you, you look at what's being described and how and the wording chosen and just the various descriptors and those factors make these two stories very different in a way. If you look at Opie, the way he describes it, it's like it's a man who walks in the treetops and there's bells and jingles and there's Magical smoke. Not there is a a tape recorder type device with a microphone and a cord, and just the the level of detail in the um, this could be a child with a very active imagination and a, a future uh, sci fi writer, uh, whoever Faye is now. And uh, gosh, I hope that's the case. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be fantastic, but Faye, we want to talk to you. <laughs> if you're, we out know there, you're out there, out there, yeah, we yeah. need to get to the bottom of this. Now, I want to point out a um, something that is a bit of a tangent, but connects in that it was a story that I heard on uh, uh, Adam and Matt from the Graveyard Tales, those boys over there, talking about the missing 411. I think I've mentioned this anecdote before, but what I loved is that it was around the turn of the century that this anecdote happened. So uh, again, all your factors and definitions were period appropriate for then. But it was a story of a little boy, maybe slightly younger than Faye, who was led into a cave by this humanoid, elderly woman type creature. And I love this story because of the descriptors and because, uh, again, this is a young boy, maybe even five or six. But what he described sounds not so much made up, but filtered through a child's perception. But just the fact that there's the gut feelings of any human, and especially of a child, and what you perceive to be a danger and that uh, this elderly woman was supposed to be his grandmother, but he knew it wasn't. This thing was like, I'm your grandmother. Like, no, you're not. You might, you might even look similar, but I, I know you're not. And there's something, yes, I'll pay attention to an adult. He followed the directions. He goes into this cave. There are these machine-like things that are against the wall. And again, the strange things that, that it said to him go beyond a little bit about uh, imagination, even your in your weirdest uh, Neil Gaiman-type stories, is that this thing put down some kind of a special mat and asked him to poop on it. And he, the kid's like, no, why? Why? Oh. I don't. I don't know. It could be something that a kid would make up. And I look at the perception of a child in two ways, especially when you get to ghosts. Children and animals react well. Animals reacting to something unseen, and it's because they don't have those adult filters calloused over their eyes and and, and perception. And and this can't possibly be. I'm an adult. This is irrational. I. I. kids don't have that yet. Yes, they don't have the the means of comprehension. That adults do, and, and uh you know the wisdom over the ages, but they see things in an unfiltered way, and they may not have the descriptors or the vocabulary yet, but they're telling you something that they believe is not yet impossible. And when it comes to adults, and we see that that's the first thing that the guy, you know, they told the first uh, adult man they saw, and he laughed because that is impossible. That's what you have here. So maybe that's a fault of the kid's description. Maybe that's a, a fall to the adult researchers. Okay, this sounds more like a clown. Well, it's kids. That's where we're steering them towards.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
3: This is
4: Katie, and when I'm not tracking satellites or my own local legends, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, you know, another question that really must be asked is, uh, what causes this story really to meet the criteria of a UFO journal in the 1970s in England? And, you know, that's something that I'd been thinking about myself. I mean, you know, the description of children meeting a clown or a scarecrow-like seven-foot-tall entity, sure, it would fit well into Fortiana, but, you know, what necessarily draws this to the attention of the British UFO Research Association? Now, of course, what we have to mention is that the girl's father, the girl identified as Faye, that not being her real name, Mr. Y, as he's referred to, he had had his own UFO experiences, plural, prior to this incident. And so he reports his own UFO experiences to the uh, Bufora. And then Norman Oliver writes this up as in sort of an addenda to his own UFO experiences, which we can talk about if you guys like. But then the story of the clown kind of takes the center stage. This is the weirder of all the stories that this Mr. Y is sharing with us, and it ends up being quite literally the cover story with the clown right there depicted on the front. So it's interesting that we might not have heard this story at all had it not been for the fact that Mr. Y, whomever he was, felt that somehow this might be related to his own UFO experiences. And I think there are other reasons, too, why this falls under the UFO camp And that really has a lot to do with when this alleged encounter occurs, which we might as well just say, again, 1973. Again, his experience is occurring in the years before that, but 1973 was a very significant year for UFOs, especially in the United States, but really around the world. And you had numerous bizarre experiences, probably the chief among them, the Pascagoula, Mississippi, abduction involving Charles Mm -hmm. Hickston and Calvin Parker, that occurring in October, I believe, or yeah, I believe it was October of 1973. So almost... Mm at the same time as uh, Faye and her young friend's alleged experience. So, I mean, temporarily there's also that aspect of it too, but maybe we can talk about the gentleman, Mr. Wise UFO experiences a bit here.
2: We should, I think it's important because it's, it's an interesting additional detail or tangent as we're known for, but it's, (laughs) but there
4: is a connection though. Yeah, absolutely. So the actual report from the Bufora journal, which I believe we've all got copies of here and which Rob's known about for quite a while. And, Of course, it served the basis of his own research and uh, production of podcasts and articles about this. It's titled Report Extra, Ghost or Spaceman 73, but the story actually begins in 1970. And uh, as Norman Oliver, presumably identified here as the editor, although it says at the top of the page, presented by Norman Oliver. And I actually have not been able to determine if he's still alive, but I presume he's probably not, right?
2: Yeah, I I couldn't find that either. Mm. But yeah, I think maybe he's probably not still because he was he's was doing high-level stuff for them, like in the late 60s. Yeah, exactly. And I did find a
4: photograph of him from the 1970s, which I don't think I sent you guys, but it's from the Beaufort Journal. And he looked like he was probably in his 50s or 60s at that time. So there's more work that could be done with that. But he writes here, I am indebted to Leonard Cramp for advising Mr. Y to write to me concerning his own and his daughter's experiences, and to Mr. Y himself for providing me with a very complete dossier of events. Now, As a point to why they call him Mr. Y, I've heard you bring that up, Scott. Uh, Rob, I heard you mention it on your podcast as well. And, you know, it seems like that's kind of a standard naming convention, especially when it comes to Fortiana. If you recall, Charles Fort had been writing a book called X, you know, Mm. and this was sort of (laughs) what he identified. And there's a well-known, albeit mysterious, Fortian who used to operate, and I've corresponded with him, actually, but he uh, used to uh, run in the circles of the International Fortian Organization over the years, and he went by Mr. X. And so I think Mr. Y almost is sort of a Fortean nod in that direction. (laughs) But he says, of necessity, these have had to be encapsulated. Nevertheless, they make interesting reading. Mr. Y has requested anonymity because of his daughter's involvement. So the first experience that he begins describing occurs in October 1970. It's around 7 p.m. Mr. Y is driving from Shanklin to Ride. Now, these are both on the the southeastern coast of the Isle of of Wight and immediately adjacent to the ocean. So as he describes that he is driving from Shanklin to Ride, he is headed north along the eastern coast of the isle toward the town of Ride, which is right up there at the top of the island. It's about a 20-minute drive, 21-minute drive between these two locations. So he says passing through the village of Brading, and keep in mind Sandown is actually right between these two locations, closer to the Shanklin side. But he says, passing through the village of Braiding, he turned right to St. Helens and then became aware of a large multi-lit aircraft to his right, about halfway between the road and Bembridge Downs. It looked enormous as it flew low over swampy terrain. Now, a brief note here. I'm presuming that although he notes that he had turned right to St. Helens, he notes again that to his right and about halfway between the road and Bembridge, but still this would seem to be in the general direction of the ocean although it's probably going to be a good ways off in the distance. Now, I'd wondered about, again, astronomical phenomena that might be occurring, and I tried to use some actual astronomical programs to determine if there might have been a celestial object visible in the sky at that time. I could not. But the description he gives of the object, to me, if this is an accurate description, seems to preclude that anyway. So the narrative continues. He stopped the car and watched. The object hovered apparently aimlessly over the swampy margins of the River Yar. A wide ring, here's that description. A wide ring of seven or more lights could be seen, each of them a large and clearly defined sphere, and he says, quote, like a bright red cherry, unquote, and interspersed with a turquoise and a white light. No sound could be heard. Our witness drove on, and the object flew Parallel. Once outside St. Helens, it cut across about 300 yards behind him and dropped slowly, meandering above distant hedges, now appearing smaller with the number of red lights reduced to four, which seemed to rotate slowly. Mr. Wyatt again stopped and this time used his torch to signal for some 10 minutes, like you do. You want to try and call him down, but actually, <laughs> this is sort of a motif in a lot of UFO narratives where people will flash lights and try to communicate with the objects and i gotta say i'm no different if i had that opportunity i'd probably try it too i bet you guys would also (laughs) yeah yeah.
2: sure yeah as long as it's far enough away yeah
4: yeah as long as there's no imminent threat (laughs) you know but uh betty and barney hill style you see the guys actually peering at you out through the windows you know but yeah so he uh he says that signaling with his torch for some 10 minutes during which time the object weaved backward and forward without settling This somewhat reminiscent of other behaviors you see in UFO sightings, especially from that period, and it also is slightly reminiscent of the falling leaf description. The leaf, yep. yep. Yeah. He then continued on to his appointment. When he reached his destination, the red lights were still there, and he left his own rear lights on to face the object. Again, perhaps maybe trying to sort of communicate with it, maybe. Coming out of the house, his friend could see the thing also playing hide and seek between the treetops. So we have allegedly another witness, but again, we don't know who Mr. Y is, so that's not very useful. As he continued on to ride, the lights were lost to view, and our witness saw them no more. Well, on several subsequent occasions, he noticed single balls of red light in the sky, which would hang stationary or follow him along as though checking his movements. But on the 1st of March, 1972, a considerably more frightening incident occurred. Now, this one involves a coastal sighting. It was between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. Mr. Y. was perched on the cliffside at Compton Bay, having been driven there by an unexpected tidal surge, seemingly caused, in part at least, he said, by some form of droning underwater craft. From his vantage point, he observed two points of light. They were yellow, and he likens them to peering up at me like the eyes of some horrible sea monster. So, in other words, two points of yellow light from beneath the surface of the water out there attached to some kind of object that he believed might have actually caused the tidal surge, which temporarily captures him rather on this little rock overlooking the ocean. He says he guessed the eyes were not much more than 40 feet away and were just below the surface of the sea like a sort of periscope. They disappeared, and as the tide gradually subsided, Mr. Y was able to get to his car and drive home. At no time did he tell his young daughter of anything he had experienced but at the beginning of May 1973 when she was 7 years old she claimed to have had a very weird encounter indeed and that of course brings us up to what we've already discussed about this odd entity Sam but i mean the question that remains is would we know of the Sam story and would her father have even ascribed significance to it had it not been for his own strange experiences in the years and months leading up to phase experience. So the two things that I take into consideration are dad's interest in UFOs and thinking, huh, maybe Faye had something related to my own experiences that happened, unbeknownst to her, and also the fact that this occurs in 1973 in the middle of a tremendous UFO flap that was occurring around the world.
3: To me, this opens up the question that teases both sides of my, my brain and perception, one, of course, being the skeptical side, not the debunking side, which is we all know is just a jerk move and is, is much <laughs> of a, a, an act of zealotry as true believing. But the skeptical side in that if a parent has an interest in a subject, even if they're not expressly sharing uh, specific events, at least according to Mr. Y, who wasn't, then a child might gravitate towards it as well. I mean, my mom got me into in search of, you know, I mean, there's definitely a, you know, a lineage thing here in terms of intrigue. So someone might be able to say, well, Faye may be trying to impress her dad was trying to tell uh, a story of something really esoteric and strange. Now, that is a possibility, not necessarily where I'm going where i 'm intrigued or what i 'm intrigued with anyway, is the possibility that, as we were discussing earlier, you know uh, you know Forrest you were saying and, and, the, and the rest that children seem to be more open to perceiving these things, but could it be a familial thing or a genetic thing whereas mm-hmm. some people are more sensitive to temperature allergies can be passed on, negative and positive traits can be passed on, maybe an ability to perceive slightly beyond the normal pale. Of human perception? I I don't even necessarily mean all-out clairvoyance, though certainly that could be one of the results, but could it be that Mr. Y was able to see just a little deeper into levels of reality that very likely could exist around us at all times? I always make Mm -hmm. the the analogy of that um, Stuart Gordon film from the 80s, From Beyond, based on the H.P. Lovecraft, loosely based on H.P. Lovecraft, where a machine activated an ability to see these flying eel-like things and once the machine was turned on not only could you see them but they could see you and attack you basically like piranha worms in the sky so i have always been Mm -hmm. since encountering that idea when i was a kid fascinated by the thought that we might be surrounded by multiple levels of reality and could it not be if that were the case that sam or other entities like it aren't necessarily non-indigenous entities they're they're here just different slices of Earth, and Mm -hmm. that some families might be more privy to experiencing these things, be it the two-eyed sea monster craft, the UFO, or a very specific encounter that has nothing really ufological about it that Faye and her friend had with Sam. And so I'm always entertaining the notion that why couldn't families, why couldn't different individuals just have a deeper level of perception, even if a child doesn't know how to perceive it or describe mm-hmm. it in a way that's anything but from her own perspective. And an adult interprets it in, you know, whatever the fashion of that moment is, be it a skyship in the 1800s or a UFO in the seventies.
1: It's the shining. They got the shine. They got the and shine. It, 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 it passes from uh, generation to generation in various levels. I've also heard personally of how sometimes those things skip a generation or they're more powerful every alternating generation, a, a, a grandparent uh, has that power. Their children do not so much, but a grandchild will. You wonder is, uh, yeah, if they are able, is it not so much a bubble created by this thing, or is it more like what you said, Rob, they're not seeing it through a regular human filter. And that that lens, that ADA, to, to use a photographic term, uh, you know, the, the tungsten or the... Uh, or the uh, incandescent filter is just not there. They're seeing something that these workmen on the property could not see and didn't interact with. And that also brings up the uh, the, the possibly apocryphal uh, ships that the island uh, locals could not see because it was outside of their realm of uh, understanding and, and experience. And so uh, it was there. It just took a while for them then to see it because they were apparently, uh, uh, according to the story, you know, made to believe this by the, the local uh, shaman who could see it because that person's mind was open. And once he opened the others, uh, other villagers' uh, minds, then they could see it. Now that, that story has been uh, debated as uh, not being true at all, but I still like to uh, tell it. So, but yeah, I think it's <laughs> it does seem to be partly, in some cases at least, biological. Uh, a DNA fluke that some people are more prone to this. We often have uh, people we know as that we say are like uh, high strangeness magnets that wherever they go, they're going to see something. Things are attracted to them. And it may not be a full-blown uh, abduction experience or anything too dramatic, but weirdness follows them. They walk into a haunted house and they're the person that gets touched or, or feels the cold wind or hears the whisper, while the rest of us did not. Even though I desperately would like to, in a safe way, I don't say we have some people telling me I should be careful what I wish for, but wanting to experience something that is outside of that realm, even as much as I'm open to it, Still haven't yet. That's not to say it won't happen. These are lifetime, you know, once in a lifetime experiences. But yeah, I, I think the father, you know, having experienced something out of the ordinary himself, was of course like most parents, as you would say, uh, it's like, well, come on, are you are you making this up? Don't waste my time with this kid. Like, just give me, you know, give me the straight dope here. What are you what are you saying? And then finally, because it is his own child, he knows uh, his own child's nature. Is that well? I don't know, seems like she really believes it. And so he's more willing to believe it himself at that point. His mind itself has been opened a little by his own experience. And then you wonder how many stories out there that children have experienced and they told their parents or didn't, or they told the parents and they were like, oh, come on, that's just your imagination. So they never told anybody else ever again. And so in in light of like documenting these things, uh, there are so many encounters, I believe, that
3: have been lost. I think it's a super conservative estimate, super conservative to say one out of 10 gets stories, accounts of either 14 experience, ufological, cryptozoological, whatever it may be, gets reported. But I think that's ridiculously understating it. I think it's probably more like one in 50 ever gets reported. I mean, much officially, much less even the to tell your friends and family would be one thing. That's one level of reporting, but to actually make it public. So I, I imagine that there are scores, thousands of accounts that would probably be the stuff of legend. That would be the kind of thing we would all be touching on and doing reports on and podcasts about, but they just simply will never leave you know, the mouth of the individual experiencing it or their tight family circle. It's something I completely understand because the stigma that is associated with experiencing these things is so dramatic and traumatizing for a lot of these people. But at the same time, I lament it because we are probably missing out on a lot of truly, truly fascinating cases.
1: Yeah. And really, what do you do with them? I mean, what do you what can you do with those uh stories? Because uh once you hear it and it's a little like this one, other than the fact that I still believe, yeah, as I said at the beginning, there's things that we can possibly piece together as, as uh, ill-fitting jigsaw puzzle pieces, but keep those pieces handy. They're going to fit in somewhere later on down the line. You just don't have a corner or an edge yet or a piece of the the picture. You know, you, You're just putting together the sky so it's still blue. You don't know where it fits, but it's an important piece. And so track it, log it. But some of these other stories, it's like, I don't even know what to do with this. So... But it needs to be reported. But yeah, I think, Rob, you're right. It's uh, for everyone told 50, 100 stories and incidences that never uh, make the light of day because, uh, again, where does that go and and, uh, how do you fit that into your mind's jigsaw puzzle? Oh,
3: absolutely. I mean, you have so much to lose and so little to really gain. I hate to even say it because I feel like I'm actively discouraging potential eyewitnesses <laughs> that are listening right. to this. And and you know what? Here's something I can say. You can always do it with the cloak of anonymity. And I know you guys, uh, you know, Micah and, and Forrest and Scott and myself, we all respect the personal wishes of an eyewitness to be quiet, but at least share your story. Yeah. If you can, because like you say, you never know when there's going to be that one piece that helps. And while I think it's an illusion, a delightful illusion that I entertain myself with, that if you get enough puzzle pieces you will start seeing the kitten or whatever the jigsaw is forming. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think yeah. it, it won't ever happen just like that. It's too vast and too obscure. But the more pieces you have, at least the more delight I have in playing with the different configurations of what could possibly be going on. And that's yeah. back to the case in point. There are so many different elements. Like Michael was saying, it is only vaguely indicative of something ufological, Sam, and the experience that Faye and her friend had. But there's so many things from... Fairy encounters to, Mm -hmm. like we indicated, a dire, uh, you know, person in a costume, kids escaped with their lives, thank God thing, which I hope, well, I'm glad it was the case, if that was the case, to supernatural. So this case, you cannot put your thumbprint on it and say, boom, this is what this is. This is clearly representative of this branch of Fortiana, because it's got all sorts of tentacles coming in and out of it.
2: One of my favorite things is when I start, let's talk about conclusions. What kind of conclusions do we have as we get into this? The first thing that I always like to address immediately that I think is hilarious is that a little girl came home, she made up a story, and she told it, and here we are uh, 50 years later, (laughs) four grown men (laughs) really drilling down on it, really getting down to the nitty-gritty of the reality of it, whereas maybe, you know... And I, can, I remember maybe you guys talked about it on Kryptonite, but I don't I didn't know that the dad had had preceding incidents.
3: We didn't really deal with that. I We tried to like bear down on one thing. And while I absolutely yes. agree with uh, the way you guys approach the subject, tell the all encompassing facts of it. Um, when we yes. did the podcast, we just focused on Faye and her buddies interaction with Sam.
2: And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But like for me, when I, when I read the before articles in the journal, and then I saw the lead and I was trying to figure out, you know, cause it's not super clear where the stories start in a journal. that's laid out like this. It's like, wait, where is this? I'm trying to find where it starts. And I'm like, Oh, well this has Mr. Y in it, but this is a whole nother thing. And I was like, Oh, so then yes, it's the first thing that I thought was it's like, you thought, okay, well the dad is into UFOs. Like you said, maybe the kid's trying to impress him or, Maybe the dad is latching on to the kid's story because he wants that to be what happened to her. And then again, when you come back to the Opie and the Andy Griffith of it all, it's like, well, it was a line technician. It was some guy that they didn't weren't familiar with. He had a weird outfit on. But it's hard to get past the three fingers and the three toes. And I think I mistakenly said there was no flesh earlier, but in the later part of the description, the, the feet were exposed. Yeah. Yes. So there there were feet here, but again, we have disturbingly low level of detail about these feet. Did they have toenails? Did they have claws? Did they have, were they blobby or were they vulture-like? I mean, who knows? Were they chicken feet? <laughs> it could have been right. anything. <laughs> There's all those factors coming into it. And then Forrest and I will touch on the same... Kind of possibilities, which I think you guys probably do on Kryptonaut as well. It's like you go to your little checklist alien, ghost, absolutely, the, you know, misunderstanding, uh, interdimensional, ultra terrestrial, which I, of course, yeah, I, no spoilers on the Kryptonaut version of this show, but I did love uh, that what Chris came up with at the end on that one. And like you said, it kind of <laughs> defies all the categories. So for me, I'm on the fence between the kid made it up and it's an amazing story or the interdimensional or the idea that you just framed, which I like even better of just like, well, this is around us all the time. It's just only sometimes you see it. Forrest and I have seen it ourselves with people uh, that we've encountered since we've been doing the show where there's like a family gift and that's real and it's there. And I know people even off, you know, outside of the show where that is. But it's hard to say anything definitive about this story other than where are you, Faye? Contact us. absolutely.
3: (laughs) The foundational question to me about this interaction is... Is it simply a case where be it children in general or Faye and her father and family in particular, which, of course, I mean, we don't know if the little boy was maybe related somehow or maybe didn't even see the things Faye saw because he was just with her and heard weird noises. But that notwithstanding, are children able to perceive these things simply because, like you say, they are less jaded, they have less presuppositions about the nature of reality or because of this? Are these things making themselves known to children because they understand that for some reason that they will be able to see them better? And to me, why that's foundational is, is it just something like Sam realizes, oh, wait, they can see me. This is my one chance because I'm basically isolated in this world with just a handful of compatriots, you know, across the way. And now I can try to interact with some of the indigenous population. Or is, is he very well aware that children are more open to these things and perhaps with a positive agenda, perhaps with a nefarious agenda, perhaps with no agenda whatsoever, making an effort to communicate with those of our species that he knows are psychologically available to the experience. And if it's just a coincidence, that's fascinating and a little disturbing, especially from Sam's point of view. But if it's the latter, well, that really concerns me a little bit more because that means that there might be an agenda and agendas don't always have to be insidious but boy, they sure can be. And if hmm. if they're connecting with the youth of our world, he's not telling about his plight. Yeah, he's only got one set of clothes. There's an encampment on the mainland. There's little tidbits here. We don't know the full half hour question and answer session, much to all our chagrins, but it doesn't seem to really have an overriding agenda, but it's just changing the way that Faye and her friend thought, or the way they will look at the world from thereafter. Is that somehow part of a more overriding, I say the word agenda for lack of a better one, and and those two things, that's what always fascinates me. Is there something that is happening at a vast level, a vast almost conspiratorial level, where things are interacting in a way that are so deep and so complex where it's like 5D chess, or does it just happen to be, oh wait, you can see me, I'm here too, I'm just as... Confused as you are living in my little shack with stickers.
1: <laughs> well, I want that wallpaper if it's available. Uh, if, again, <laughs> Faye would have to uh, try to describe it. But my perspective on this is that if we were to go with
4: what is most likely, then this is a story, right? You know, Faye came yeah. home and she told a story. Maybe her dad had some real experiences. And maybe he found her story more impressive in light of those. Or Mr. Y could completely just be, you know, hoaxing the British UFO Research Association. We'll never really probably know. And the biggest problem, like you're saying, again, Scott keeps coming back to, Faye, if you're out there, we want to hear from you. Well, since we don't know who Faye was, you know, how will we know if someone comes forward claiming to be Faye that they're actually Faye? That mm-hmm.
2: occurred to me even as I was making that request. <laughs> they would have to prove it somehow, yeah. which I don't know how they do it. would be a
4: tremendous, it. you know, problem with trying to verify the story and the chain of custody thereafter. But more important than that to me, than all of that, is the other point you made, Scott, that, well, here we are all a bunch of grown men sitting here just going deep, just analyzing this. <laughs> And that, my friends, is the power of myth. And that is something all unto itself that really should be recognized because, you know, we might say that in terms of, there's something Whitley Streber said in Communion that always stood out to me. He, trying to analyze his, his own experiences and to kind of reflect on them, he said, what if this is what evolution looks like to humanity as we're experiencing it? And I've often wondered, in the very same line of Jacques Vallee referring to a UFO control mechanism, you know, what is the interrelationship between us and the way we perceive said phenomena? But then again, the effect that it has on us. There wouldn't have to be UFOs. There wouldn't have to really exist for us to recognize that studying them and having a passion for it and an interest in them and a fascination causes us to innovate. We—I actually said this recently to somebody in an interview. If you look at the Avro car, you know, the joint U.S. Mm-hmm. Canadian project. Uh, from back in the 60s, we were trying to build a flying saucer based on descriptions of what people say that they were seeing. Even if you remove the possibility that they exist, it's influencing our innovation, our technological progress. And so I do come back and I wonder about stories like Sam the Sandown Clown. Is this just a child's story? Or is this actually the very essence of why mythology is important? Even if you just reduce it down to only being that, it's incredibly important. And we learn from this sort of a story that, well, we come away with a broader understanding of the weirdness of what it really means to be human. Maybe this is a process of our evolution or our cultural yeah. evolution and adaptation to everything, anything from stress in our environment to any number of other things. And again, that not to take a completely reductionist standpoint, but I do think that a Based on what I'm telling you here, even if we were to resolve that we'll never know who Faye is, and this is probably just a child's story, I still find it important having conversations like
1: these. Even if there's nothing true about this, at the very lowest level of, uh, and, and the, uh, the bottom rung of uh, averageness and uh, common denominator where we sit, it's entertaining. So <laughs> nothing of what we say is really profound or of import perhaps but we hope it's entertaining and and look if you take the story just at face value as a kid's story like uh, i applaud you Faye. that that's pretty good sci-fi now it, it doesn't hit on everything because as far as the story goes because like you said it, it has shortcomings but even if it's as david lynch has been accused of with some of his films these are good weird things from a director's notebook—a really weird director and uh, with a, one with a lot of imagination. But it doesn't really make a good movie. It's just weird things that happened. A lot of them involving Robert Blake. But if if you <laughs> if you look at it, and it's just some weird uh, collection of uh, phantasmagoria and strange uh, sights, uh, richly evoked, then it's interesting on that level alone. And so, if you look at this story of Fay, it's like, well. She describes some weird things, and maybe it's made up, but like you you both of you said, we're here discussing it now because of the particular types of things that she said and the particular types of descriptions, and maybe there's some meaning that can be gleaned from that. And I'm leading to my conclusion here of what was it then if we take this as being true? And that's what I prefer to do because it's my choice. This is a free country. I can do that. I can can pretend to, uh, or at least actually buy into this because to me, that's more entertaining and uh, just a lot more fun. That's the world I choose to live in. And and so if you take this as uh, an honest description, perhaps faulty in some ways, then what I want to know is uh, if Sam is actually more spirit or some kind of strange creature that has really white, paper white flesh and three toes and is some kind of physical being, but also part machine also part spirit in the way that the kids described or, or thought of it that way. I look at the message, all these UFO stories I come across and I actually judge a lot of them by uh, the one I always go to that seems silly to me. It's the Billy Meyer story, because what is the message? It's like, uh, here's a letter you got to give to your, your governments of the world to uh, stop all religion. It's like, yeah, that's not going to fly. Would you, are you really asking that? Aren't there other things you could ask for? in your bullet list of, uh, you know, your, your demands to the world governments. And like, that's, that to me is very much 50s sci-fi with a weird, uh, a bunch of other isms going on in there. You know, you look at the message. And so what did Sam want? What was his message to the kids? Why did he appear to them? Was he just lonely? Did he tell them something in that hut that the other 25 minutes of the encounter that just really were over the heads of the kids, but he had to tell somebody? that maybe his race is dying, even as uh, if they are interdimensional. He's one of the last of his kind. He can't even get clothes made anymore. He just wanted to reach out. But that wasn't relayed. So that is lacking in this terrific sci-fi story in that there doesn't seem to be a message. It's only one that you can kind of glean from the the small bits of weirdness that uh, we're left with. It does have a little bit, because I forgot to say this, a,
2: a WALL-E vibe, yeah. a drone, like a leftover drone, a piece of technology like that's that. lost touch with its creator and is just trying to continue doing what it was programmed to do. And, it, and it's operating at a very limited level because all it was ever supposed to do yeah. was gather data <laughs> or something.
1: Compact trash. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So it's interacting because that's part of its program or its own AI will. And that's what it's doing, but it yearns for something more, either survival or to relay something that's more, much more important, but it's just limited. And and that's part of the sadness of this story, too. It's just that something that kind of comes across me, and I'm maybe totally making it up and, and it's not there, but just that there's a sadness to it and maybe some hopefulness in that now we are telling the story again so many years later and keeping... Sam's story alive a lot, a lot of this though the last thing I'll say is just that you know you can look at UFO encounters in two ways and that there is sometimes a big message to the world of uh, clean your act up or you're going to really destroy yourselves well that's we know that <laughs> you know like if we could get it together I'm sure a lot of us would prefer that or on the other hand most of these stories I I would say are personal they're a personal encounter meant for that person not a world message it's either hereditary there's something in the DNA. You were just there at the right time at the right place. And now your, your grandkids are going to experience the same things, but it was a message to you or it was you alone that experienced this. And that's where it stops. But maybe there's something else that the rest of us can, can find meaning in. I'm done talking.
2: And that's going to wrap up this <laughs> yeah. episode of Astonishing
1: <laughs> Legends. Wait, sorry. I just wanted to, I, we had to go another 20 minutes. So I just, I wanted to blather until like, a, a oh, yeah. around, I, so. I
3: loved it. You know what? You actually emotionally engaged me in ways I didn't think would be possible with Sam, the <laughs> sand down clown. So I, I thank you for that. <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm getting a little weepy eyed. I mean, this poor tattered, lonely entity. And then once you mentioned the E the element, I'm thinking, but what if this was a piece of... Prehistoric technology from like that branch of humanity that had scientific paradigms that are so foreign to us. We all we find are rocks with carvings, but we don't really know where it came from. And it's just this lonely being that was created from the hands of mankind hundreds of thousands of years ago in a society long lost to us that is just functioning, just so glad to finally have someone to talk to with its peeling sticker dials and its sad, (laughs) berry eyes. And then I'm just like, all I got is heart for this thing now. I want to hug it until it takes me into oblivion or whatever it's intended. It's a literal (laughs) cryptonaut. Literally. (laughs) Not even figuratively.
2: (laughs) What if it was a time slip? Yeah. What if we're looking at it the wrong way? It's not an alien. It's not a whatever. It's a, it's a time slip.
4: Oh, great. That means we've got something to look forward to then.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless it came from the
4: past. Mm.
3: Not to go too Whovian. I mean, if it is from the future, then we're dealing with basically <laughs> cybermen who get whittled out of whatever (laughs) woods are available in tatty clothing. And I'm just like, I'm not sure I'm hyped up on that as a future. I mean, maybe it's awesome. (laughs) Maybe it's orgasmic ecstasy in a pure energy bundle that just happens to get shoveled into this form. And in that case, (laughs) oh, yeah, I'm I'm all about it.
2: But alternatively, it
3: doesn't seem so hot. But if it is something ancient that's been around and gets interpreted by different generations as elementals, as, you know, Demi-deities as as whatever, and it's just, like Micah was indicating, it's just like a triggering mechanism. It's not necessarily the agenda isn't like something that's on the surface, but just the interaction itself is where the significance lies. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, human history is literally riddled with inexplicable encounters with non-human intelligences that seem all the more perplexing when you try to break it down on a rational level. And this certainly fits that bill. But that may be essential to uh, us, in the same way, uh, again, like Micah was saying, the way mythology is in our growth as a species, both intellectually and spiritually.
2: And that's going to wrap up this episode. That that was awesome. Wait, that was wait, that was a way better ending the, than when the one forest did. No, I that wasn't. No,
1: I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> that's done. where we would I, I, I was <laughs> done talking for that twenty minute segment. No, I no. It looked like Micah was going to say something.
4: Well, uh, no, I, I you know again, what could I add that you gentlemen haven't? But again, you know, I mean. No, I like the way I, I like the way I said it. <laughs> no, I like the way I said it better the first time. Again, you know, I mean, stories like this express the power of myth if nothing else. You know, yeah. but it really raises questions about what myth is and what that means for mm-hmm. us and really fundamentally what it means to be human. Then again, though, I will add one more thing to extending Forrest's general idea to the broader UFO Subject. This is something my colleagues and I talk about often. What if the UFO phenomena, rather than being intelligent, controlled visitation with an agenda, what if these are mostly autonomous drones of ancient unknown provenance that are just going through the motions or doing what they were designed to do? We see some sort of incredible technology at work and we're trying to discern what is the meaning behind it. These things, it's A, B, A, B, very binary processes that they're carrying out. And once we finally get to the bottom of it, we're going to be like, what, really? These are somebody's, you know, leftover (laughs) carpet cleaners, you know, from another dimension, (laughs) you know? So I don't know.
3: Could be. That's the most depressing summation of the UFO phenomenon <laughs> I have ever heard, Micah.
4: We just solved
3: it, and, and it wasn't
4: what we all hoped for. We all hoped for something yeah. more, but it just wasn't.
3: <laughs> oh, it's real, it's fantastic, and it sucks. <laughs> that's probably what it is. It's going to be more prosaic than any of the lofty things we want to, we want to hang on. It, always, that's reality.
4: But that also, yet again, I I know I tend to be a humanist in that sense that I always come back to our great achievements. If we were outdoing ourselves the entire time and we were attributing all this magnificence to the UFO phenomena that wasn't there, yet again, that just goes to show the incredible power of the human mind, right?
1: Yeah. Here, here. Yeah.
4: We are makers yeah. of astonishing legends. <laughs> there you go. He was nice.
2: he was waiting to spring that on us. First of all, we want to thank you guys yes. so much for coming on and discussing this with us. Um, especially since uh, Rob, you've already done it once before with your cohorts. Speaking of which, uh, Rob, why don't you tell our listeners where they can uh, listen to your uh, your wonderful voice if they wanted to find <laughs> you speaking even more candidly than you yes, did on our show?
3: Extremely candidly. Um, it's. <laughs> Cryptodot Podcast, you can find it on iTunes, Stitchers, wherever uh, you know podcasts are available. You can go to our website. We also have a website where we try to chronicle the articles, cryptopia.us. I will state for the record, as was generously mentioned by you guys in one of the early podcasts, we run blue. We are perhaps not safe <laughs> for work or anyone with a <laughs> sensitive disposition. We get a little bit, uh, you know, a little spicy at times, but we have a good time with it. We treat the subject with a lot of respect. And uh, and again, you just, if you've got small kids or even big kids, you might want to be cautious about playing the podcast, but we hope you guys enjoy it. And thank you guys for the ringing endorsement.
2: Absolutely. And Micah,
4: can you tell listeners where they can find you? Well, I sure can. I just have to uh, endorse Rob's show though, because I, I enjoy the heck out of it. They are funny. Those guys make me laugh. And it's the perfect balance between informative and enjoyable. Now, I try to go a lot more down the informative uh, rabbit hole on my shows. And
3: I just got to say, too, Micah, it is a mutual feeling. Your your work is amazing. (laughs) Thank
4: Thank you, brother. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to certainly do more in the future. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to. That's why I appealed to Scott and Forrest to be on this episode, just so we could all have the conversation together. It just sounded like too much fun. But, you know, yeah, my shows, the Micah Hanks Program is the main flagship. There are actually four shows I'm producing right now, um, and you can find all of them at micahanks.com, but there's the Micah Hanks Program, which mostly these days deals with UFOs, and it is addressing the latest news and perspectives. I try to get as many journalists and academics as I can onto the show to talk about that. And, yeah, you know, call it a pet project of many years, trying both to legitimize, but also just to bring really intelligent commentary to the discussion. That's what I'm doing on that show. But then again, we also have the Archaeology Podcast, which is the Seven Ages Audio Journal. Middle Theory, which Forrest has become a recent listener of, and he's been enjoying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. on, and I appreciate that. And then the new podcast I've just launched is called Sasquatch Tracks, okay? Uh. Yes, and this is about once a month, although we dropped three episodes immediately, and then there was a two-week period, and then we dropped the second part of a very lengthy interview with Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, PhD, but I mean,
0: wow! this yes. is a
4: show where I'm basically saying, okay, all the serious conversations about cryptozoology as a biological reality with heavy emphasis on Sasquatch that I've never heard anywhere except for that really lengthy several part episode about Petty that you guys did. (laughs) Maybe that's this podcast. And so my cohorts and I, uh, Jeff and Smokey, we do this podcast about once a month, but it's been great. We've spoken with Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, of course, also spoke with a naturalist named David George Gordon. But then my bucket list was Peter Byrne, you guys mentioned in search. Oh girl. yeah, Peter Byrne, classic. Ninety-four years old, still alive, yeah. still not as much as he used to be, but still involved. So, got him on the phone for about an hour, and boy, I tell you, that oh, that was amazing. a game changer. So that's what I'm up to. You can find all that junk over there at Micahanks.com.
2: Excellent. Well, thanks very much, guys, and uh, hopefully we could do this again if you're both up for it. Oh yeah,
3: absolutely. It's been such an honor. Thank you so much, Forrest and Scott. I mean, this really. It's a podcast I love. Astonishing Legends is brilliant. So I feel like I just got drafted up for a couple games in the big leagues before I could <laughs> sent back down to work out the kinks in the minors. But thank you guys very much. And, and you too, Mike. It was great having a conversation with all of you. And I really do hope we can do it again sometime. Likewise. <laughs>
2: That's going to wrap up our show on Sam the Sandown Clown. A very special thanks to Rob Morphy and Micah Hanks for joining us tonight. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new show, which might be Kexburg. Stop spoiling things! Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bola.
1: Hi, I'm really This is Zane Exactly. Hi, I'm Katie. As in very
3: important little imp. My name is spelled... E-X-A-C-T-L-Y. Thank, Thank you. you.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and
1: co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps.